Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space Book Club. What's today? Sunday, June, I'm going to guess 6th. Uh, and it is a little bit later than normal. We're doing book club. But today's book is Beyond Order by Jordan Peterson. And I've got a whole bunch of people here with me. Let me see if I can unmute them and enable everyone. So hold on for just a moment. Uh, there's Carrie, but I don't know if she can speak yet. Let's see. Okay, everyone should be able to unmute themselves now. Carrie, take it away. Hello, Carter. I'm going to say, I'm going to welcome everybody one more time a little, with a little bit more upbeat nature. <laughs> Hello. I, I'm, I don't mean to be down. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I love I'm this in that book. mood today. You know, I can tell. It's, it's cool. So I'm very All excited. Right. And uh, this month we read nonfiction. We read Jordan Peterson's Beyond Order. And I'm uh, very excited that, to have, we have some new people with us here today. If it's your first time here, uh, just a reminder to keep yourself muted unless you're speaking that way, there's no background noise. Also, if you're watching and it's your first time watching ever, you can join book club. It's free to join and participate. You can go to unsafespace.com to the book club page and we have lists of books that are coming up and we usually alternate between fiction and nonfiction. So. Welcome, Carter. So, uh, what? What did you think of the book? I didn't read it. I I skimmed it a little bit. Okay. I'm I'm completely uninterested in this book. Um, wow. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, I just don't. I didn't even. I didn't even try. I didn't like not get it done. I just intentionally set out to like. Meh, I'll read the titles and the few paragraphs of each one, and I'll be done. Um, that's how. I, that's how I felt with. Um, what was the last one that I, the one I did not enjoy, uh, the fiction. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Hitchhiker's Guide. I actually did try. I sat down and tried several times, but I couldn't get into it. I love this book. Um, I, I've got a couple chapters to go. I'll be honest because I've got, I've got this wedding I'm planning and a lot of other things going on. So I apologize. I didn't get to the very end, but I can't wait to get to the very end. And, um, and I mean, you probably know what I think of this book. I'll just start off with my thoughts and then we can open it up. i Jordan Peterson's first book, but actually before his book, his lectures, finding his lectures and some of his old lectures about tragedy versus evil and the way that he talked about the Cain and Abel story being an allegory for two modes of being in the world fundamentally helped me to change my life completely. And in this book, Beyond Order, he gives a few anecdotes about people who come up to him and tell him, what he's helped them to do in their lives and these amazing transformations. And, and I know that that happens to him because if, if I were to see him, uh, I would be one of those people. Oh, I did see him at his book signing at his book, uh, his last lecture tour or whatever, but I would be so one, of those people. one of those people. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you're there real quick. You're taking a picture. I'm not going to be like, <laughs> you you helped me to change my life. I, I, you know, be that blubbering person, but that's true. He's helped me to change my life in so many ways, radical, radical ways. And so um, a lot of this was, was territory that I've heard him cover before, obviously in Maps of Meaning and um, in a lot of his lectures, but I, I love the way that he makes it very accessible. He takes a, what is, should be common wisdom and is no longer that common. And he, he puts it in a really straightforward way and he, he, he's able to write with 
um, great insight, I think, by taking taking different kinds of knowledge, taking different areas of knowledge and weaving it all together. And um, uh, and and I'm really I'm I'm just really grateful for this book. So, so that's my that's my general thoughts about it. But we can get some other. Well, thoughts. I I I do want to say at the outset, mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not. Like I like Jordan's lectures. I actually haven't seen many of his lectures, but you know the bits I've seen, I like. I love watching him do interviews with mainstream media people because uh, he does an excellent job. And so I don't. It's not that I don't like him. I just don't like. I didn't like the first book, um, and so I was like, twelve more. I don't know. I'm not really. <laughs> I'm not really down. But um, why don't we? I, I'm sure a lot of people love this book, and let's let's just start with an easy question. What was the theme of this book? Balance. Anyone can jump in. Balance was the theme of, the theme of this book, in my opinion. Um, leftists need right leaning, or left leaning need right leaning. Um, Dave Ramsey says nerds need free spirits, or else they wouldn't have any fun you know, and the free spirits would just never have any money. So <clears throat> like the mm -hmm. left need are the free spirits and the right leaning or the nerds <clears throat> kind of is how I and used that previous knowledge that I learned and applied it to what I read. So I think that one thing that was really it struck out to me was if you read the, the overture as opposed to a kind of along with balance was the overture, meaning that he had written this book for a while and then had a really bad year in 2019 and 2020, and then to still stick by these principles and then forward it. Um, a lot of it was stuff that he has talked about in his lectures, but um, it was a deeper version. I actually thought it was better than 12 Rules. 12 Rules for Life I thought was good, but I think this was actually was better, in my opinion. So. Was anyone else? I, I'll. I did read the overture. Was anyone else bothered by the overture? Because I was. I was. I like. So I did the audiobook for both books this month because I hadn't read the first one yet, and uh, so and he reads them in his sort of reedy voice. And when he did the overture, and he uh, there were a couple of points in the book in the audiobook where he starts almost crying. And it's really hard to get through those parts because it's just, I mean, the words themselves, if you were just reading them would be intense enough, but then in his emotionally laden voice, it makes it a lot harder. I was gonna just echo what Austin said that I liked this book even more than 12 Rules for Life. And I would agree with Cheeky Mayor that I think it's about balance, but, and it's about, he sort of in the overture talks about how it's about keeping order in check. You know, he, he talks about the balance between chaos and order. And so the first book being about order, 12 Rules for Life, this is about how to keep that order in check. Um, but I think more than anything, this is a book about each of these rules. You, you can look at them. Um, he's talking about big picture things, real world things, about how things can go wrong in the world and have gone wrong in history and, and how to prevent those things. But all of it relates back to the personal. He it, This is a book about transforming yourself personally in the way that you behave in the world, which he believes will transform the world. And I do too. There's one part where he even says, um, 
he's talking about how he believes that people have a much much greater impact when it comes to do you know doing good and evil in the world than they realize that your personal impact is a lot greater than you may think it is no matter how small it is no matter what kind of cog you are um so i think it's a book about personal transformation i haven't read the first book so i haven't i uh but i read this one in it was actually a pretty easy read for me compared to some other books that are sort of uh, not the fiction ones, right? Because the way he writes is so, you know, he, he puts examples. Now, a lot of it at first I thought was opinion, but um, he was putting his anecdotes of things that happen and explains the, what he's trying to explain. It makes a lot of sense when he says it. Um, I thought that the book itself talks a lot about how we have to confront our fears and take personal responsibility about our own lives and our own selves and how that will make a big difference in, in, in everything for us. Um, you know, and I do like the fact that he never talks. I mean, he, he talks about both sides of how well everything is. There's, you know, two extremes and both are needed to a certain respect. He doesn't say it exactly that way, but he, he doesn't say this one is better than the other. He's just explaining why they both exist and how each one contributes in a positive way to the balance that we end up getting, right? But in this, in the, in the ultimate side, what I saw was how we have to sometimes get out of our own minds and take control of things and, and uh, you know, confront fears at times. Like some of the anecdotes he has on that were, you know, very insightful in my opinion. So... I, I agree that this was about balance, but what I got that was weaved throughout the whole book is what do you need to have balance? You have to keep talking. It, to me, it was all about keep, to keep talking and storytelling. Like, because he weaves like myth, you know, in, and it's, it just goes back to the origins of storytelling and how it still is relevant today. And so, you know, the, the connection piece is that, yeah, to have balance, you have to have the sides and yeah, that's what stuck with me the most. I was yeah. like Carter, I wasn't interested in reading this book at all. <laughs> and when we had, we're supposed to have book club last week, I was like, Oh, don't have time. Sorry. Not going to be able to do it. And then when I got, Move backwards a week. I was like, oh, I guess I do have time after all. So I actually did read it. Um, and like Manny, I didn't read the first one. So I had nothing to compare it to, whether it's better or worse than the first one. Um, I didn't not like the book. <laughs> um, I think the thing that I appreciated most about it was, you know, the balance everybody else is talking about, but he's got a very heavy emphasis on seeing the world as it really is rather than either as we would like it to be or you know focusing on potential like particular aspects of it as opposed to the whole big picture which is interesting because he uses metaphors the whole way through to describe but what he's trying to do is get people focus on to focus on what reality actually is and I think that that's a huge part of our cultural issue a large part of our culture issues right now are stemming from people not being willing to look at all of reality as a whole big picture. So I appreciate 
some of our current problems is teaching systemically of you need to teach our worldview and only look through it through the worldview. I'm listening to somebody say, we have to bring social justice to all of our lessons and teach the kids to judge everything by this. If I said we need to bring a Christ, you know, bring Christianity into everything and spread our message to everything, you recognize that as religious. And then on the social justice side, it's like same language, same intent, but you're the ones with systemic power saying we need to implement our solutions to solve systemic problems. I'm like, you say this is bad and then you're doing it because you don't realize you're doing it. I noticed I've read 12 Rules for Life. I've read Beyond Order. And this book is much more philosophical. And a lot of the ideas he had in the first book that he was trying to take as taking Christian narratives and morality, trying to make it meta narratives while still tying it back to Christianity. This book is much stronger on the high level moral principles and why on a moral and rational basis. And he uses the cultural metaphors, but mostly leaves the religious stuff behind. But I've also noticed that he has come out much more Christian and religious as a expression of, you know, I don't, I, it's a miracle that I believe in Christ was one of his recent interviews. It was interesting to say, as he's become more personally religious, his writing became much more philosophical and abstract. So instead of trying to marry the scientific and the moral and the political and the cultural, he has a pure philosophical work over here with some personal on there and then went religious over here as if he could only do the purely philosophical if he leaves the science behind and focuses on religion personally. So it's kind of interesting seeing that divergence in his work is what lets him finally get to that purely meta philosophical moral treaties that he couldn't quite get in the first book. So I think this one's better if that is your goal of here's a meta narrative of morality without necessarily tying in the religious or the lobsters. I loved the lobsters. That's my favorite part of the first book is the lobsters. <laughs> it's, well, okay, anytime he got super scientific or he got super clinical was when I, he, I loved the books. But when he went, like when he brought up patients, I loved those parts of the book, especially the Sleeping Beauty one. That was great. Um, but I read a lot of psychology books with a lot of uh, clinical basis in them. And uh, so to me, I'm already like, primed for that but um the lobsters i love them i i love that whole section it's so awesome yeah he had a lot more poetry in this one i thought and uh a lot more uh, maybe i haven't read the 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 first one in a while so but i think he had a lot more like you're saying tamara a lot more references to god and the bible were incorporated as well so um what about is there is there anyone we haven't heard from yet who wants to give their overall general opinion of the book about what it was about or what your opinions were on it um i meant to say can you hear me okay um a couple different things 
In the first place, I, I think that one of like the unspoken assumptions behind a lot of what Peterson does, and, and this book is no different. I think it's actually much more apparent with, with, with Beyond Order. Um, one of the underlying themes in a lot of his work is that most people sleepwalk through life. People live a lot of their lives on a kind of autopilot and aren't really consciously in control of it. People aren't very intentional. And it seems to me that that <clears throat> a great deal of his advice is geared toward focusing on something until it's in your control. And one example of that, I think, is the rule where he says, uh, if um, you have a memory that's bothering you, write it down in absolute detail. And I think that the underlying assumption is that if you become conscious of something, if you subject something to your attention or, you know, turn your attention, bend your attention on something that sort of forces you to take ownership of it. And if you make a habit of doing this, you're more intentional and, and not sort of uh, sleepwalking through life the way you were before. Um, other than that, I did mean to ask uh, Tamara, are you on Cora by chance? I seem to recognize your name. Yes, I am. About 7.5 million views. Oh, I was going to say, I write there quite a bit and I could have sworn I've seen you around there. That's, and that's where this book started out, I think. Isn't this, wasn't that from his Quora answers on rules for life? Well, well, to your point, Caleb, and thank you for joining us. I don't know if I've seen you before. If I have, I apologize for not remembering because we did have one book club with 50 people. So if it was that one. <laughs> um, anyway, to your point about paying conscious attention, attention to things, I, I agree. I think he's trying to help people to do that or he thinks it's, it's best if we try and live that way. And, and I think it is best. And I really loved his chapter about not sweeping things under the rug, you know, not hiding things that you don't like in the fog and even the things that you think of as little things and the anecdote he gave about the patient who didn't think that certain things were worth arguing about or fighting about. And a lot of these things, I wonder if other people have the, have the same experience that I do where I can either see my past behavior in this or I can see the behavior of people I know in, in this. A lot of the examples of the chapters that he gives, it's like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about here. I've done this, or I know someone who's done this, or I can see the effects of this in, they've played out in my life before or in someone's life that's close to me. Um, and so that chapter really, I, I thought was, uh, uh, resonated deeply because I've, I've lived through a lot of that, of, of not knowing how to confront the the problems that that seem too small to fight about until they're too big and you're swimming in resentment because you've been swallowing what you really mean and what you really think about little things for so long that it all just boils out of you um so i really liked that chapter it also made me think about um there's a study we've talked about before on unsafe space where and i forget which study in particular but neurologists say that you know if you verbalize what you're feeling if you verbalize your emotions, if you pay conscious attention to them, that it then will lessen the degree to which you're feeling those emotions just by looking at them. Uh, so anybody else who hasn't spoken yet?
I'm not going to make you. So, <laughs> well, we can get into some specific chapters then. I was kind of taking a running list of what my what some of my favorite rules were, or maybe the ones that speak to me mostly now. Are there any chapters? Is there anyone here? Is there a chapter in here that you felt you're really glad you're reading this right now and has great advice for you or do, or beyond the personal, do you think there's a chapter in here that um, everyone should be reading right now that the culture needs to read right now? Yeah. So um, when I was, I was reading it and yeah, there are a couple of chapters in there. Okay. Like the romance one, it's not really relevant to me, but, um, but the, the one thing I think you said, interesting people said was like getting into it and stuff. So actually uh, after the overture, when I first opened up the book, I was kind of, caught i did not like the first half of the first chapter um but the second half was my favorite part and i think it was really interesting to kind of see that because in here peterson's really delving into like the Jungian side of like his philosophy and so he's talking about the fool and he's like oh yeah it's good to be a beginner and it's good to be kind of uh out there and just be kind of naive and i hate that like if you know me a person like i hate i hate that position and then he t turns it around and talks about how you're actually teaching people to play to cooperate and not play to win. And I know for a fact, I definitely play to win. And it was like, Oh, okay. We're, we have three different ideas here and we're tying them together. And that was probably one of the best parts of the book for me. Like it really, like the second half of the first chapter was nuts. Cause that's like my biggest flaw. I don't know anybody else, but that one really got my attention. Wait, can you explain that? I, I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand what you're saying. The The point of the first chapter that you, you took from the, if you could summarize what the first chapter meant to you. Oh, well, in the first chapter, he, um, I can find it he talks about delving into how it's good to be a beginner. Uh, mm -hmm. And right. I have a note next to it that I, I hate being a beginner at anything. Okay. Um, and then he <laughs> finishes it up. Uh, let me see if I get here. Okay. He finishes it up talking about being an expert and later on he talked and actually there's a whole rule later on about how you should devote yourself to one thing and master it mm -hmm. and it's it, it might not be like a, it's not like the most obvious juxtaposition he makes but he may, he does kind of put the kind of compare the two in a little ways or at least they're put in a, a way that they are compared and combining that with the idea of like the, the archetypal fool was very interesting to me um and it was like okay like that speaks to my preferences and speaks to my own psychology i was pretty impressed mm -hmm. by that and that's very Jungian I don't that's why it seems so abstract and esoteric I think right what I liked about that part um is he says you have to communicate things well this is just paraphrasing you have to communicate things that have value to others or basically you're you know you're not valuable or you're ignored or you're invisible and that related into he told the story about the rats how um, if a rat loses so many times or isn't invited, then he stops wanting to play. So um, I actually really liked how he talked about being not necessarily the winner, but the most desirable of players. Um, the only way you can keep winning is if people want to keep playing. So that's what I like about uh the the continual injection of beginners and if winners don't encourage beginners you know i don't know <laughs> i say that all the time when i do uh game reviews of like uh multiplayer games and like if people are jerks that's a common thing they're jerks to new players and i'm like do you want your game to keep playing and have running servers then stop being mean to new players 
Uh, and so like, that's a huge thing in the gaming community as a problem. So like, to me, it makes a lot of sense. Like seriously, stop rubbing your wins in people's faces. And that also occurs in a lot of other spheres of human life. And one of them actually that I noticed, uh, this is a personal story, but it relates is I used to do martial arts. Um, for a while I did Brazilian jujitsu. <clears throat> and one thing that I learned while doing it was if you want to have any sparring partners, don't just like monkey stomp somebody repeatedly who is new because you can easily beat them. You have to occasionally let them win or else no one is going to want to spar with you if they can't ever have a shot at winning, even if they're, you're, even if they know that you're letting them. I think this is well, what the, the empty cup analogy is what I was thinking, which is also a martial, anyone who's done martial arts, I assume Caleb, you've, you have, you've heard this phrase, like you come with an empty cup. It's all about beginner's mindset being very important. Um, and I don't, what Alex just described in, uh, the gaming community is not at all my experience in martial arts. I don't know what other people's is, but it's the exact opposite. And I, I mean, like, I think that, that a beginner's mindset, I don't want to monopolize too much here, but a beginner's mindset to me seems almost to be like, it, it was some, what you could call a rational naivety meaning the point that you're being naive and just taking everything at face value, because when you're a beginner at something, you have to do that. That's the only way to learn things. If you come in with any preconceptions, that is with a not empty cup, then you're not being naive enough. So the best, the most obvious place where you can see this is when you are teaching and or playing with children. And well, that might've been a bad use of words, but um, <laughs> um, like, I, I imagine with my nieces and nephews, um, you know, if, if you just, you're teaching them something and they're learning it and they're like, you're, you're going to keep winning like tic-tac-toe, for example. I remember when I was teaching my niece tic-tac-toe and she just couldn't see it. She couldn't see it, couldn't see it. And so I, it does drive me nuts to let somebody win, but you're not really let, letting them win. You're helping them to see how to win. So you, ha I think that's that play that he talks about of, well, humility is like a huge theme, right? So like a winner has to have the humility to recognize how, uh, not necessarily allowing somebody to win is teaching them. I don't know. I don't know if that is a good argument, but I just see this the most with, with children. The bit about humility is, is a really good point, I think. Um, one of the things that you'll hear in martial arts, especially, um, especially more competitive ones like Muay Thai or Jiu-Jitsu or something, is check your ego at the door. And, and like you said, in order to let someone win, you have to be humble enough to give one away. And like, oh, well, what if they think they really beat me? Well, it shouldn't matter. You should be able to do that regardless. I'm just laughing at that, that human ego part of like, I'm going to let them win, but I'm going to make sure they know I let them. <laughs> yeah. Like what's the point of that? <laughs> it's also a sign of skill though, in martial arts to be able to spar with someone who's much more junior and not hurt them and be uh, tough enough that they can beat you and you're challenging them, but you're not overpowering them and you're not doing nothing. Like that's a skill. Teaching is a skill that is intentionally cultivated. I think I see it right now. Um, one of the things that really stuck out with me, so I, uh, I was a competitive athlete in the Army, and I was in the top 50 nationally ranked for the, for the United States Army uh, in 2018. And I saw that, like, my attitude typically is like, okay, like, 
do whatever you can to win. And like, it's all about the win. And I see it right now is like, uh, I compete in CrossFit now and I love hanging out with people I do, but there's definitely like this different distance between me and some other people because the, the attitudes are different. And I see how that's negative in myself. And it's been like, it, like, it was like seeing this chapter and seeing the two combined, it was like, Oh, that's the thing I'm missing. And, um, definitely a huge place to work on, but I agree with that on martial arts, like how you look at other people and down other skill. Um, it's not that you necessarily hate people, but if you are out there to win and you're out there to, to try and it, it comes from a place of ego and it's not a good thing. And that, like, it was like, okay, like these ideas are really coming together. So I real, that really spoke to me, especially in mastering something too. I mean, I just want to say there's absolutely nothing wrong with like, I'm going to win. Like, I, I don't know if anybody saw that clip or if anybody watches uh, the UFC um, Rose, she won. Like, she was like, uh, there was a clip of her before she did the fight and she had like a knockout. She was just like, I'm the best. I'm the best. I'm the best. And it was just this like mantra. And then she goes out there and she just like wins. And there's something really like awe-inspiring for people that are training or learning to like have that, to see that, right? There is a part in the book where he talks about the importance of being the top dog and like, you know, and that segues into his discussion about the difference between power and authority and the responsibility that comes with that. So I just wanted to say, like, I think that energy of a winner is, is really like palpable, you know? I think I, I liked that part, how he drew a distinction between positive, healthy ambition and tyrannical desire to control others and have power over others, like a, you know, just a desire for raw power and how those two things are different. And I think maybe some of, of, what you're talking about, Austin, I think, I think a person maybe has to, has to get to a place where they've mastered and they've become top dog before they, what he talks about starts to happen where they're, where they're taking great pleasure in helping newcomers, you know, the, the new person or the fool who's starting out in that endeavor. And he came back to that a few times about how, you know, don't be cynical because there are people who who have greater skill than you in any, in, in a field who are going to want to help you. If you are, if you have ambition and you're competent and you're willing to take on responsibility. Exactly. I agree with that completely. And I was actually going to bring it to that way. Cause I was like, Oh, the end of it I was like, Oh, looking towards chapter 12. I'm like, okay. I, this attitude where, where it leads to exactly right. I was like, okay. Yeah. I took this chapter to be very, um, a, a little bit different. I think I've been teaching one of my youth group people to sew and teaching cause she does not have an empty cup. Um, she has a ego, but I've been teaching her to sew and I've been giving her, you know, the, you put the, the pretty sides together and you have a, um, a quarter inch seam and you don't go super fast, but she doesn't, she just goes broom. And, you know, there's a big old seam and I'm like, well, you need to know the rules first before you can break them. And she's like, well, this isn't a garment. This is art. And I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> you need to have a good foundation and know the rules. Cause I'm no rule follower. You know, I know, but I do know that I need to have the basics down before I can you know, modify them a little bit to um, suit what I have in my brain. 
So I think that that's how I interpreted the chapter. I, I used to teach college freshmen and they almost no, none of them came with empty cups. Oddly enough, actually, the, the non-traditional students were more likely to be there to, you know, see me as their teacher and to, to, you know, pay attention and take the stuff. But like the young 18 year olds, they were like, oh, no, you're an idiot. And also I look very young. So that doesn't help. <laughs> I think that that's built, built into a lot of human activity is this idea of learn the rules before you break them. And it's not just that that works, but I think it seems to me that a lot of traditional pedagogy a lot of the older ways of teaching things are founded on that process. Um, for example, if you learn any music theory, the one of the first things you'll learn is counterpoint. And the thing is, is the strict species counterpoint that they teach you when you're learning composition is not something you would ever use in a real piece because it just ends up sounding like a Renaissance melody or something. But the point is, is that once you write in that extremely strict restrictive idiom for a long time, it leaves its footprint on your cognition and it changes how you write music. It's sort of informed by that. So I, I think that when pedagogy is done correctly, it takes that into account. And most really old traditional forms of pedagogy that have had a long time to develop have exhibited that pattern. I wanted to, I wanted to add to at what Alex said, just to, you know, just so it's like, I mean, we all know what, why this is happening, but you know, why we have kids. So I teach, um, I'm a professor as well. And I just took a, a course, um, a certification course through the college that I teach at. And it was like, I had to, we were sent this, like, these are the rules for teaching a good online class. And one of the rules basically was like, you know, let your students, you know, build the class and they, they'll teach the class too. Kind of like, I get what they're saying, but like, this is the kind of stuff that kids are hearing. Oh, like we're co we're co-making this class together. Now I don't have, I'm very much of like, I want feedback. Like I want this to be like the best, safest, you know, uh, most inspiring class. You know, I want to make sure it's clear. I want feedback and all of that, but no, you're not teaching. And so I, sorry to get on a soapbox, that just like triggered me. Cause I was like, I think part of the reason is that these kids are coming up with a perverted uh, uh, encouragement. Oh, God, I don't even know how to articulate. I don't think it's bad to encourage young people to challenge, but I also feel like it's somewhat of a perversion in the way that it's being done. Like to tell me as a teacher, you need to let your students be part of the process. No. So that was just my, That's, little... I think it, it gets back to what this book is about, which is balance is it, there's a lack of balance there. It's sort of saying, Hey, we don't want the classroom to be so authoritarian and, and like a dictator who where there's no freedom and there's no um, creative space. So we're going to go completely the other way and there's not going to be any rules or boundaries and the kids are going to, I went to a parents group in Austin like that when I first moved here, my friend took me and it was a bunch of three-year-olds and we, and, and their parents, and they sat us on a blanket and told us before we walked into the park that this, this nature walk was uh, the children teach us. 
and that we should refrain from judging or from giving speaking and and we just kind of follow these toddlers into the park (laughs) it's like that might be a snake over there like I don't you know there are some things that you maybe want to just kind of you're the you're you're the uh, adult and uh there's a balance there uh, well that brings up a really good point about uh how antiseptic everyone views the world now that they don't think about the fact that there could be a snake in the park you know like that there's danger out there and it's the parent's job to protect the child the toddler from picking up the snake like we a lot of people think the world is so freaking safe now that there's nothing that could possibly come along and and do something horrible to them anymore and it's like you guys need to get over your idea that the world is secure because it's not <laughs> there's something that we're we're hitting on here that i also it wasn't just in rule number one it was also in rule number four i wrote it down actually a few times it's this whole um, freedom within boundaries thing. I, I like that theme. It's something that personally I've been coming back to for a couple years now, ever since I I, I got to hear a lecture about um, St. Augustine and the, the, sort of this idea of, you know, what's the definition of freedom and where does creativity come from and, and thinking about how like an art, for example, boundaries can actually help you bring forth that cre- creativity. And he touches on that in chapter one. And then again, in chapter four or rule four, sorry, where he's, he's talking about, um, uh, do we want things to be easier? Do we want things to be difficult? And in really thinking about that question, do you really want them to be easy? Do the things that you get from, from, ease are they are they worth it are you satisfied with them or are you more satisfied with things that come from difficulty and he says it's for this reason that we voluntarily and happy happily place limitations on ourselves and he gives another example about game playing um this was another another rule that i really liked rule number four yeah he says what, what makes you so sure you don't want something heavy to carry? I don't know if you remember that. Like, how do you know you don't want something difficult? And it's kind of counterintuitive. And I, that really was like, I don't know about anybody else, but well, I know Carrie, based on your talk about the fog, because I was like, oh, like that whole section. I was like, I was like, get out of here. But like, there's so, there some parts where I felt really called out. I'm just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, when he, when he really, he speaks very passionately about, um, carrying, you know, heavy things and, and, and doing difficult things and, and obviously carries it through of what's on the other side of that. And, and, and so it's like, you, it's very short-sighted to be like, what makes you so sure you don't want something heavy to carry? You're like, oh, how dare you like like we need to minimize suffering. Like, no, it's because there's something on the other side of, of pain and suffering. And that's what makes life worth living. And that's just like the whole thing. So it's just, yeah. I think one of the other things he says in there in chapter four was, uh, starts talking about death metal, which I thought was really, really funny. And on page 135. And, uh, so a lot of people, when they meet me, they don't know, like, I really love metal. Like I was I'm really big in the metal scene and stuff like that. And the reason people don't usually assume that is because I am typically like an orderly person, but he kind of juxtaposes it because it is true. Like 
the most disorderly and chaotic and nihilistic people like are into death metal. And he goes, yeah, you're sitting there and you're talking about how nothing matters. And then of course your favorite song comes on that has extremely thought out patterns of music and melodies and a really complicated organized structure. And you're like, Oh God, that music. And it's like, yeah, like, you, you know, there's, there's even the, mo the most staunch nihilist right now has some, some sort of order they like or, and vice versa. And you might not know which ones you like. I think was really kind of the under underlying uh, idea behind that. I think that there's been like this long, slow process. This is kind of a backdrop to his book. There's been this long, slow process because the West is basically an egalitarian uh, society or an egalitarian civilization. There's this constant drive to reduce the amount of hierarchy that's there. And what ends up happening is you is supposedly this is to free people because we've had liberalism since the 1700s. But what ends up winds up happening is, is that when you take away all of the responsibility from people to try to liberate them. And to me, it seems that when the left talks about, oh, this is liberating, what they really mean is, is this is taking away responsibility. But when you really take away responsibility from people, you kind of end up infantilizing them and taking away their power over their own life. So a, a lot of what he's saying there when he talks about how everybody has a kind of order that they like is that the order you like is going to be connected to that part of your life you most want to take control of, or I don't know, maybe I'm reaching there, but it's just a thought. Well, it seems like a lot of his writing is about personal accountability, which is kind of why, like, I didn't get a lot out of these books for like learning new ways to handle my life, as opposed to just reaffirming and maybe motivating me again because I already had a lot of that personal accountability. So it seems like, and I don't think a lot of people want personal accountability. I don't think most people want it. I don't think they care about it. I think they think it's, uh, they may not consciously think this, but they think that it is uh, unsavory to them because they want someone else to tell them what to do, what to think, uh, how to live their life. They don't really want to be responsible for themselves. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I go back and forth. Some days I think people don't want the responsibility and don't want to wake up and they, they want to follow, like we've talked about on the show before, they want the government or someone to be their daddy and they want to live in authoritarianism where they're told what to do. But other times I think, no, people aren't happy living this way deep down. He gets to that even, he, he sort of talks about how, and I'm gonna paraphrase because I can't remember which chapter this was, but he's talking about if you're, you know, if you're living in this unconscious way and you're making choices, it might be the chapter on don't do something you hate. He says, deep down, you know, like you're unhappy. And and so sometimes I think, well, well, these people who are followers and they're just choosing this because it's easy and efficient and it's the shortcut. And they're not doing what he says about like thinking of the, their future self 10 or 15 years down the road. They're just living in the here and now in the moment and just doing the cheap method of happiness, but they're not deeply content and happy. And if they're, it, I guess the question then is, is there a way of, you know, writing a book like this, are you going to reach those people? Are you going to reach those people who want a better way of living and just don't know it? Cause they don't, maybe he reached me. <laughs> so, you know, not with this particular book, but with his lectures, I mean, he reached me. So I don't know. I go back and forth on that question, Alex, I guess it depends on the day. Um, 
whether I'm feeling more optimistic about about what humans want and how they want to live or if I'm feeling more pessimistic. Well, I don't think you can be happy or content with your life without personal accountability. I don't think it's possible, honestly, like, um, because nothing, I agree. You, nothing you've done is your own work. So you, you can't be happy about that. That's not something to, to enjoy about yourself. I agree. Can I tell you an anecdote? I was in a bad relationship once where Carter knows all about this. He helped me take personal responsibility <laughs> and change the part I could change, which was being in the relationship part. Um, and I had started to grapple with a lot of these big questions and I was figuring out what I was, what I wanted, you know, where he's, he, the chapter where he talks about a lot of people are afraid of asking, it might've been chapter three, which just really got me, where he's talking about people are afraid to even ask the question he says, imagine more precisely that you are so afraid that you will not allow yourself even to know what you want, because knowing would simultaneously mean hoping and your hopes have been dashed. And he goes on and on about like, if you're, you're afraid that if you know what you want, then, then you might try and get it and then you might fail and this whole fear of failure. And, and just how so many people just don't know themselves. That resonated with me. I got to a point in my life where I didn't know who I was or what I wanted. And I had to start from the very bottom and build a foundation. And I and that happened because everything was torn down. Ideal, my ideology and um, my my whole sense of identity and self and who I'd built to that point, everything about it changed. I changed over a period of years. Um, I left my marriage. I left my career. I left my ideology. I left a lot of friends behind in this changing or they left me. And then being at this beginning part, trying to figure things out, I got into this bad relationship which was not a good thing to do. And I remember I was trying to figure this stuff out and I asked him, I said, what do you think, what is the purpose of life? I was thinking about purpose and meaning. And his answer was, his answer was not purpose and meaning. His answer was wine, drinking, sex, and traveling. Those aren't me. None of those things are meaning. Those things are pleasures. I'm having traumatic uh, flashbacks for, for uh, Carrie. This, this conversation is reminding me of that conversation with you. Like I, but yeah, but, but I think that that that's not that uncommon. I think a lot of people have never examined themselves or their life and they, and I'm not saying that they don't want to, I think that they just are happy living, having things in the fog until things boil over and explode in their life. But I think that, that, that is a deep, like you're saying, Alex, if you're living an unexamined life and you don't have personal responsibility, I think you confuse simple pleasures for, for meaning and purpose. And I think that those people it just anecdotally um, from what I have learned in my life are deeply unhappy. Uh, Can I point something out, not yeah. having read the book, but I, I um, there's, by the way, there's a book that you guys might like if you're interested in living consciously called the art of living consciously by Nathaniel Brandon. Um, and, but, but he also talks about, he's one of the progenitors of the self-esteem stuff before the self-esteem movement got taken over by, uh, you know, panty-waisted, attaboy people giving trophies to everyone. Um, and one of the things that he talks about is this sense of self-efficacy, which is this idea that this feeling that you are psychologically capable of living in the world and being autonomous and dealing with life, which is this fundamental sense of like, yeah, I can deal with life. Um, but to build that, you need obstacles. You need to overcome challenges 
to build your sense of self-efficacy. If you never have any challenges, if there's never anything daunting that you need to suffer through and persevere through and achieve, you never build that sense of self-efficacy. And I imagine that if you're someone who's gone through life not doing that, you must feel pretty inadequate about dealing with the world. And that's got to lead to a whole bunch of uh, neuroses and other psychological problems if you feel that incompetent to deal with the world. That's exactly what they covered with Jonathan Haidt in The Coddling of the American Mind. The kids were told, we're going to give everybody a trophy because it would be seriously harmful for them to fail a test or not get a good grade on it. Everybody in the science fair gets a trophy. Everybody who is in the race, we're not going to have winners or losers. Yay, yay, y'all. So they don't even get the easy minor failures to learn how to deal with it. And a generation that's been raised with that into their 20s now sits there and has the highest rate of anxiety and depression despite being the financially most prosperous and socially free of society. Instead, we're getting conspiracies of, oh my God, we're totally oppressed. And people using words I don't like is equal to slavery and literal violence. Like if you can have microaggressions, you don't have micro macroaggressions in your society. If you can give a flip about that. So I they've never really had challenges. I, I, I wanted to, um, I, Carrie, th that point you made a little while back, or the question you asked, like, will it actually reach people? I, I was kind of, um, I, I was kind of throwing that around for a minute. And what I wanted to say was that I think it will reach people if it's done right. Because what happens is, is when you get people who are raised this way, kind of like what Tamara was saying with people being raised in sort of the coddled way. Um, when you have people who are in that situation or who are raised that way, because they're being deprived of personal responsibility, you know, pursuant to the conversation that Al you and Alex were having, because people are being deprived of responsibility, personal responsibility, which is what's going on, it's deprivation, they're going to be steadily more miserable. But the nature of it is such that, and I'm, I'm playing fast and loose with language here, but the nature of it is such that they're not conscious of what's happening to them. And so what the book would have to do to be effective and reach them is make them conscious of what's causing them to suffer and then offer a plausible sounding solution. Do you think, the, oh, go ahead. I think one of the things that it kind of facilitates is like, what is a virtue? And you can kind of sit there and do like the whole Greek thing where people talk like, what are virtues? But what you're really establishing is like, equality has kind of become overnight its own virtue. Um, and I think about like, it's okay. And it's actually a really good thing to try and cheer for the last person through the line. Like if you're in just any kind of event, like last person through, like cheer them on. It's great. It's an awesome thing, but you must reserve the podium for the one who did the most work. Uh, I think one of my favorite poems of all time, it ends, it says there's, they haven't yet made a filter that uh, makes the podium seem superfluous to the dream. Like you're, you have to reward good and excellent behavior, but you also, it's okay to, to encourage somebody who's a beginner in that sense. And I think the first book at least covers some of this personal responsibility better of first clean your room. Don't sit there and go, I want to save the world. I can't save the world. Okay, nothing matters. Start small, clean your room, then clean your house, then start cleaning out on the street, and then you can start, you know, slowly building your circles of influence, or pet a cat and have little things of 
joy, pleasure, support that you do. And that helps society because you're not going to, most of us are never going to get that top pinnacle. And even if you do, it's a brief moment. Look for the little things that improve your life and fix the little annoyances. So the first book is actually stronger on what can you do in terms of personal responsibility, even if you're really just starting out. I really, I think I, that, go ahead. No, no. Uh, great comments, everybody. And uh, what, what uh, Austin was saying is, is absolutely true. I mean, you want to be able to reward those who excel. I mean, it has to be that way because if you think about it and it's, it's something that's logical, we become better by challenging ourselves. And if we don't provide challenges to people where everything is, it doesn't matter what I do, then there's no reason to be, try to do better. And that's how everything goes backwards. So unfortunately there's that mentality that, yeah, well, you're looking at it from the other side. Well, people are gonna feel bad because they cannot do. They will be better if they try, right? It's not, everybody's not gonna be best at everything. You will always find something that you're gonna be very good at and you can excel at, but we have to reward those who are doing better. And, you know, it, it has to be that way. I think that the book itself, in a general sense, as I think about it, it's talking about expanding our, our comfort zone, right? We're, we, it's very easy for us to fall in this comfort zone where we're like, okay, we're, I'm sort of happy where I am, but I don't challenge myself to get beyond that. Or maybe I'm stuck on something that bothers me, but you know I don't want to rough, ruffle the feathers, so I'm not going to say anything. Or I'm not going to try to do something that maybe scares me a little bit. And uh, in a general sense, every chapter, I mean, <laughs> sort of goes back to the idea that you can control and you know by taking responsibility for what you do or looking at situations that bother you or situations that you think you can you know, make a difference on, by doing something, you can make a difference. And, um, you know, I, I, like Alex, I like a lot of the anecdotes. The one about the, the kid that had, uh, had the sleeping disorder, the nightmares, not the nightmares he was having, they were saying that he, that he was possessed. Um, you know, it, it, well, the way he writes the anecdotes make a lot of, make, make, you know, make things a lot better to understand. I, I mean, he really, draws in those stories really well because I think what happens is as individuals it's a lot to we, we can learn in theory many things right you can theory but when you learn something in practice it makes a lot more difference and sometimes these situations by seeing how it happened to other people and that's where the stories make a lot of sense then you can sort of empathize with it and say well and you can maybe see some of that in stuff that's happened to you which you know it, it, I thought it was a great for that reason. I remember when I was a teenager, I was in a bowling league, my second one, and uh, they gave us all trophies. I hated that. I hated it. Absolutely. But by that point, I'd already been diagnosed with a learning disability and had to overcome it. So to me, I'm like, I already faced a challenge pretty young. And I'm like, why did you give me this trophy? It meant nothing. It means nothing compared to the one I won for a hula hoop competition when I was six years old. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is not helpful to kids. It's, it's just, it doesn't teach them 
anything to and it in what oh it's I'm going to bring it back to gaming, but in MMOs, there's this idea that everyone's the chosen one. You're the chosen one. And, but everyone's the chosen one. <laughs> it means nothing. It's a joke. And that's exactly how it feels when everybody gets a trophy, when everybody succeeds. It, none of it matters. It's just, it's laughable and it's sad. It's funny that you bring up awards. I started doing something. So I teach fully online and there's a feature that I guess my department didn't like know that we have like I can give awards to my students and every semester the temptation is there to give them all like completion you know some kind of award and uh so I do give uh, awards and not all this not all of them get awards (laughs) so I, I but so I don't know if that says something about you know being conditioned into that or if there's something in us you know I don't know like you know maybe as an underdog I don't know what that is I don't know what that 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 temptation is I don't know my kids go to a private Christian school but their award ceremony this year historically they've done citizenship awards which pretty much as long as you didn't get suspended you get a citizenship award um but which is most of the kids you know they don't have a lot of behavior problems at private school but Um, this year I noticed that instead of doing that, they picked out specific, they have honorable characters about, about 12 or 15 character qualities that the kid, they train the kids to exhibit. And they picked one out for each specific child to say, this is the one that you did a really great job this year, excel, you know, excelling in. And like my son got the diligence award. Um, I feel like there are ways that you can include everyone while still calling out people for their individual strengths, which, you know, I really appreciated. That takes a lot of time, though, and they don't always want to do that. I think I'd just like to point out that losing is a very important part of life. So uh, (laughs) you can't actually have a sane adulthood and be well adjusted if you've never lost. I I was going to say that I think that like failure is soul forging, but success after failure is pain erasing. Like it's really, really important part of that development. So I, I wanted to uh, move ahead a little bit in the book and talk about, oh, there's so many chapters I like, but um, rule number eight, which was make make one room in your house as beautiful as possible. And I like this chapter because I've been thinking more about, and I think a lot of us have been thinking about, you know, we're, the, I, think, I think a lot of us are in agreement that there's a pretty bad ideology that has become mainstreamed at the moment or that has given been given a lot of um, attention and a very big microphone lately. And in pushing back against that ideology, I think it's becoming more and more obvious that we need to be very clear about what it is that those of us who push back against it believe in. We have to give some people something in alter- an alternative. It's like, if you're against social justice, well, what are you for? And as I keep trying to think about this and figure out what am I for and reduce it to its most basic components, I keep coming back to truth, beauty, and love. And beauty, which is what this chapter is about, is something that I I haven't really fully wrapped my head around yet why that matters. I keep, I have some ideas about it. And I saw this great documentary by Roger Scruton um, about, uh, the importance of beauty, what was it called? Why beauty matters. 
Um, I would definitely recommend that film. But in this, he sort of, I think it might have to do with my belief in God. And I know that there are atheists here who may not have that same opinion that beauty is necessarily um, attached to a belief in, in the transcendent, but Peterson does, which I thought was interesting. He says, uh, unless you can make a connection to the transcendent, you will not have the strength to prevail when the challenges of life become daunting. You need to establish a link with what is beyond you, like a man overboard in high seas requires a life preserver. And the invitation of beauty into your life is one means by which that may be accomplished. And then he quotes from the Bible a little bit further down. He says, as it is said, men shall not live by bread alone. That is exactly right. We live by beauty. We live by literature. We live by art. We cannot live without some connection to the divine. And beauty is divine because in its absence, life is too short, too dismal, and too tragic. I wonder if anybody wanted to talk about this and, and what does that mean to them and help me figure out what it means to me. <laughs> I think... I, I'm really glad you opened the floor just there because I'm full to bursting here. Uh, but I, I, I did want to say, I think that part of the reason that it can be hard to grasp why beauty is important is because right now we live in what you might call an industrial society, right? We, we, everything is calculated. The road is calculated to be a certain width. The bridges are calculated to stand up a certain way. Uh, the, the lanes and buildings for people to walk are calculated to have optimal flow of foot traffic. Uh, warehouses are built to store just the right amount of goods as efficiently as possible, so on. And so we have this, I think, like this myopic focus because of how important technology is now. We have this kind of myopic focus on just efficiency. And what has happened is that beauty has become kind of obscured. It was not so long ago when it was considered a no-brainer that when you make a new building, it's supposed to be pretty. Even as recently as like the mid 20th century, when they even when they built something as boring as a skyscraper, they had like art deco skyscrapers that were meant to be beautiful. Uh, because beauty is important because without it, we, we become, we, we either go nuts or we become very depressed. Uh, th there's a great picture I saw a while back of a train station built in the early 20th century that was covered with statues and carvings and murals and just, you know, every inch of it was, uh, was beautified in some way. The place looks like it's a pleasure to walk through. And what ends up happening when you lose beauty is that you lose everything. You, instead of building train stations like that, you would end up building something that's geared purely toward efficiency. And I, I think the, the good limiting case here, like if you take this line of thinking that beauty doesn't matter and take it to its logical conclusion, where would you end up? And I would say the logical conclusion would be that it's better to be like chained to a wall in a room somewhere with a machine giving you an IV drip of chemicals that make you happy. Um, that would be the most quote unquote efficient way to do things, but without any consideration for a transcendent value, that's where you end up. I, I, I don't know. I was kind of rambling there a bit. Maybe that helped. Yeah. Have you seen that documentary, Why Beauty Matters? I have not. Um, I am a big fan of Roger Scruton. I know he's, he's one of the like really important conservative voices. I would love to read and see more of him, but why don't, I mean, is there anything about that documentary that stuck out to you that maybe- Well, you just what you were just saying, he, he, there's a part where he focuses on architecture and he shows these abandoned cities uh, where they'd gotten more and more industrialized and also, and the architecture had become more 
communist, maybe <laughs> more like a beehive. And he, and he was talking about how it used to be that it, we knew that when you made a building, you wanted to make it attractive so that people wanted to spend time in it. And anyway, I think you would like that documentary. Simone, Simone, did you have something to say? I'm going to take a stab at this. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the last podcast that Jordan Peterson did um, just this week. He had on Rex Murphy, and Rex Murphy's a Newfoundlander. I am too, from Newfoundland, Canada. And um, Rex is a, a, a journalist, and he talked about his upbringing and his time in university in about the 60s. And he talked about university then as you would go in like, well, I, I guess you could go back to chapter one, right? Don't denigrate institutions and how he um, went back, went to university and you would go with that beginner's mind and that humility and you would be there to absorb the poetry, the language, the knowledge, the information that was, was given. And whereas now when students go to university, someone referenced, they go in and their, their cups aren't empty. They're going in half full and they're all ready to kind of tear down the world, which made me start to think about um, when I was just in Germany back before pandemic 2019 and, and the juxtaposition between um, in Berlin and, and um, East Berlin and, and then uh, West Germany. And, and like what you described about buildings and how communism and um, basically resentment and um, uh, tyranny overtaking and um, destroying those things that are beautiful because Peterson references beautiful things represent an ideal. And we can look at that ideal with awe and with worship or we can look at that ideal with anger and resentment and an evil heart with a, with a desire to destroy. So I know I'm also meandering, but I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. <laughs> oh, I love this. Thank you for thinking out loud. Tamara, did you want to add to that and build on what she was saying? Cause I saw you say something in chat. Uh, I've read about the, and seen a lot of the, I've got an engineering background is looking at a lot of the postmodern architecture is intentionally ugly to reject the absolute standards of beauty. And then it's often intentionally hostile to people or hostile to purpose, at least in part saying, well, we're, this is how we're going to deviate from the norm of the industrial functional society. And that's how you get the court buildings that are awkward to navigate and the exterior of the building that looks like a slug with 50 eyes. I believe I had shared that article on the unsafe space at some point where it was, you know, this black curved thing with little windows jutted out like this. I'm like, it may have a high energy rating, efficiency rating, but it's difficult to use. And it looks bad compared to the classic Baroque or even the um, wooden styles. I think that he also talks about art in it um and he makes a pretty good stab at trying to define art and I've, I've gotten this debate with people before about like what is art a lot of people think like it's really popular and i'd be like everything's art if you get an emotional response from it it's like no it's not right but one of the things i think is interesting is uh talking about beauty is like there's this idea that beauty stands alone um like truth is not truth is independent of a lie truth doesn't have to rely on a lie to, to formulate its existence uh beauty doesn't have to as well 
Uh, neither does, uh, like capitalism is a good example. Capitalism is not a response to communism. It doesn't matter what you think about communism. It's not anti-communism. It's its own thing. Communism is a response to capitalism, right? So I think beauty is the same way where it's kind of, it, it matters because it teaches you a virtue that stands alone on itself rather than has to be defined by its opposition, which is so popular of, in most of our topics when we talk about today on anything in virtue. Awesome. So I, is there, is this a false, like, I, I don't know anyone in modern society who's arguing for efficiency and no aesthetic, uh, no aesthetics. Like we're not, we don't build buildings like that even. Um, like you can make the point that buildings have in, in the past were more beautiful, but look at, look at communist architecture and look at capitalist architecture. Communist architecture tends to be all about efficiency with no aesthetic value. Capitalist architecture tends to have aesthetic value. Now our, our aesthetics have gone awry because our culture is gone awry. So now our aesthetic value is intentionally ugly, but it's not efficiency is, is, is not the goal. I don't see, I feel like we're, I feel like we're trying to. Uh, argue against a straw man. Like no one, I don't know anyone in society, who, any major person who argues that things should be efficient with no aesthetics. I um, think- uh, real fast, as a response to that, I, I understand that, but that's also, I mean, that's kind of the core of the idea of like the anti-fat shaming, like total body positivity movement, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the core of it right now is that everything is relative and therefore if everything is so relative, then we shouldn't praise anything above one another. And if you do, it's some kind of privilege. It's, it has to do with uh, assault on truth. I know it sounds weird, but you connect those two ideas together in my opinion. And I think Peter's- I, I, I see that. I see that on the personal level with like fat shaming and that kind of stuff. And, and I see the deconstructionism there, but we were talking about buildings and art and like, I haven't seen that. Like I see the intentional- um, I see the intentional attack on beauty with the ugly architecture and ugly art and all that stuff, but that's a, you can't attack beauty without valuing aesthetics. Uh, like you value aesthetics and want to destroy them. That's the value that you see. Um, well, I would I say that see. there's probably like a, like there's certain groups of people behind architecture. There's uh, subgroups of architects who want to push efficiency there's subgroups of people buying uh, new building designs who want to push efficiency, whereas there are some who are like, I want the postmodern thing and the architects who are good at that. And then there's, uh, but the problem is, is that we don't have anyone wanting to buy aesthetic plans that we understand as actually beautiful, nor do we have really architects who are trying to push that uh, either. And that's kind of a, like, there are no Frank, Frank Lloyd Wrights right now, unfortunately. But neither are there like strict efficient architects who are just trying to be efficient. They're, I think there are actually. Are I there mean, a lot? I don't know. I mean, I or at it. least there's some meeting their client's desire for a complete efficient building. I don't know. The clients, they, they seem to like ugliness. Like we've, that's what we're talking about. Like they're like, they want to build, uh, What's that center in LA? I don't know. Whatever. They're they're like aesthetics still matter. It's just modern art aesthetics, which are bad. No, I think it's both. I think there are people who definitely are in the out of out of just serving efficiency and laziness and cost effectiveness are forgoing beauty. There are def that's definitely happening. I think I think both are true. And and then there's also an assault on beauty happening. But like in the documentary Why Beauty Matters, there's a part where he talks about, you know, on these wrought iron fences we used to have these little sculptures on top of each point, you know, and, and those take time and extra money to make. And why would you make those? Well, just to make it beautiful. 
but in the interest of efficiency and saving money, like, well, you don't need those. Get rid of those. I think a lot of little choices like that are made over time where it's sort of beauty is not as important. We've, I think, I think both things are true. I think we're devaluing the importance of beauty culturally, but also there's an outright assault on what is beautiful and the definition of what is art and what is beauty that's, that's happening too. And like you said, there are people who know how important it is, how important beauty is, and therefore they're trying to flip what we call beauty and, and, and render that word meaningless and say, well, poop on a, smeared on a canvas is beautiful. I think that as far as the whole efficiency thing goes, I, I, I do see what you're saying, Carter, Carter, that there aren't a whole lot of people who would straight up just say, well, screw aesthetics. Everything just needs to be efficient and let's forget it. I get that. But what I, I think that there is a prevailing attitude that's kind of invisible, but you will see it if you ask the right questions. Like if you mention to some people, and there are quite a few people like this, this is anecdotal on my part, but if you mention to certain people, um, something like, uh, like, oh, this should be prettier, or we should have more statues here, they should add a painting. Very often, the kind of response you'll get is this very confused look and like, well, what's the point of that? You know, people will, if you make the comment to people, oh yeah, this should be more beautiful, a lot of the times the response you'll get will be like, why? That's pointless. What is that, what's that going to do? What is that going to do? And, um, and I do think that there is a lot of architecture, actually, that is what they call brutalism, which is no attention paid to aesthetics. Uh, and if you want an example of that, go to any parking garage. Inside and out, parking garages are never decorated. They, there's zero effort put into making them attractive at all. It's one of the most common structures in a city, and they're all hideous, not intentionally, but just because any kind of aesthetics is completely neglected. And if you were to raise this point to a lot of people, I submit to you that the response you'd get is, well, why bother making it pretty? Yeah, although, I mean, I don't know. I'm just thinking of, like, anyone who's been to Berlin. You can tell where East and West Berlin you can tell where the, you used to be able to. I haven't been in a decade or so. You can tell where the dividing line is, and it's the architecture. You can tell where the brutal efficiency was and also run down. Uh, you can, it's like, okay, very clearly, that's the East, and and then the more beautiful, aesthetically pleasing stuff is in the West. Um, and, you know, I, I guess we could focus on architecture whenever you – make something more mass produced, which I think a lot of, a lot of some of the parking garages, probably there's like very templatized stuff. But also I look around and I see like people caring a lot about aesthetics, both in their fashion and the art and movies and music. Like there's a lot of aesthetic uh, input in our lives. In fact, I think we probably have more access to beauty and aesthetics, or at least I'll put beauty in quotes. We probably have way more access to, to aesthetics than we did 200 years ago. Now I get that a lot of it sucks and there's like this intentional anti-beauty thing going on. But I mean, when you were, you know, two, three, 400 years ago, you didn't get a chance to see very much art or movies or music or entertainment. Like beauty meant going outside and looking at the hills and that was about it. It's funny you should say that. Part of the reason that piano transcriptions for a lot of symphonies exist is because not everybody could go to a symphony, but there are pianos everywhere. So the, that one reason there's a version of, say, Beethoven's Seventh for being meant to be played on a piano is so that more people could hear it, even if you didn't live in a huge city with a symphony. As long as there were a decent pianist there, you could hear that piece. 
Um, but I wanted to synthesize, I think I can, we're, we're circling a point here, all of us. We're kind of circling around a point that I think is very critical. And that point is, is that beauty is kind of hierarchical. By its nature, it's something that is superior to other things. It stands above other things. Beauty is kind of an aristocratic quality. It doesn't jive well with the idea of equality. It's kind of anti-democratic in a way. But it's a certain kind of anti-democracy that, or sort of anti-equality or hierarchy or whatever you want to call it, that we need to be comfortable with or else our lives are going to start sucking. In the book, he has a phrase, just to tie it back, the monsters of nature, the tyrants of culture. And so something that I've been thinking about as, as we've been talking about beauty is beauty is subjective. And, you know, as we're talking about architecture and as we're talking about culture, um, I think the monsters of nature are the ones that are trying to render beauty meaningless. And the tyrants of culture are the systems, whether it's communism or, or um you know, aspects of efficiency and the, you know, the whole stream of this, you know, the book is well, we go back to the balance, right? Like, and so what I think about, when I think about beauty, obviously you brought up the democratic aspect of beauty. To me, it's, it's not whether we can all agree on if something is beautiful or where it is in the hierarchy, but are we free to see it as we want to see it? You know, that's kind of where I go with that. But we're not free to see it as we want to see it if seeing it and liking it makes you a fascist or other people will say that, which I mean, and there have been cases of this. I, I, I can't name any names here because it's been so long, but there have been cases of people saying things like, well, poetry should have rhythm and meter and rhyme schemes and being called fascists for it. I think it might be the the group of people that Carter's exposed to, because I'm exposed to, I design, help design wastewater treatment plants. That is shit right there. <laughs> and um, they, the towns that we design for want it to be super efficient. You know, they don't care what it looks like. They want their shit to be messed with and cleaned and, <laughs> and put back into the river or the lake or wherever clean. And, um, but the towns that we've worked with, the little towns that we've paid attention to the like angle of the road and we've matched the angle of the, the tank with the angle of the road, they're less likely to complain about the smell because there's going to be smell if we pay attention to the beauty part. And, and so we've had to kind of um, adjust the, the uh, owner of the, of the, or the city council or whatever, their little point of view, they're like, well, this would save us a uh, million dollars if we moved this tank this way. And it's like, yeah, but do you want all of the people around your wastewater treatment plant to be complaining the whole time? Or will they ignore the smell if there's a mural on the side of this shitter tank or, you know, stuff like that? So I don't know. Maybe it's just the group of people I'm exposed to. Well, I'm not arguing that there's not people who are all about efficiency. And sometimes efficiency is the right thing. Like maybe, maybe wherever a building is or whatever, it's just, maybe it really isn't worth it, but that's not the only place that we find beauty. If you look at, you know, someone brought up the Baroque period earlier, that was like buildings were one of the only things that common people could 
actually experienced that have like building statues. Maybe the buildings had some art in them if they were churches, but like they didn't have Netflix. They didn't, they couldn't go listen to beautiful music at, at, at a whim. They couldn't put, they didn't have art to put on their walls. So like, okay, there's certain things where beauty isn't that important. And then there's other things where we are. I just, I think it's a really hard argument to make that in 2021, the average person has less access to purely aesthetically valued things than several hundred years ago. I think you're absolutely right that we do have far more access. And it's one of the great things about this age. Like I can go hop on gutenberg.org and read all the classic literature I want. The problem is, is that we're all trained not to value it. So the access doesn't help. Nobody uses it. Well, not that that's an overstatement. Not nobody uses it, but very few people do because we're all trained not to value it. Mm-hmm. Or, or we're confused about what beauty is, which other people have been talking about, which I, I agree with. There has been a deconstructionist movement to like convince us that the poop stain on the museum wall is the equivalent of a, of a Van Gogh or whatever. Or the mural on the poop stain. <laughs> right. right. Or just that it's not in- or just that it's not important. Yeah, I don't really understand what we're still talking about here because I, I think it's just beauty is important. This chapter is talking about the importance of beauty and why is it important is I guess what I was, I think I think that's a question I'm still circling around even though I've watched that documentary about why beauty matters. And I do believe it has to do, I think it has to do with keeping you in touch with something that's transcendent and bigger than yourself. I think that it is a connection to the divine and um, and I think that we're losing that connection culturally, and and that's maybe why that's maybe why it's being devalued, and the definitions are also being muddied about what it is. But um, you know, uh, it, we've talked about this too when it comes to like the Catholic Church and and the way they beautified cathedrals. And when I was in the ideal the social justice ideology, I used to look at stuff like that as a waste of money and, uh, you know, sort of narcissism or calling attention to oneself. And actually a lot of beauty in general, I viewed as that kind of a waste. And, and it's not all, it's not all ostentatiousness. It's not all um, useless. And it's not all some, it's not all greed. It's, there is something I think inherently valuable in making a place beautiful, especially if it's a place that is supposed to have great meaning for you. Um, like your home or your church, the place where you worship, you know? Um, so, well, I'd, I'll speak for the atheist community and say, uh, I don't know any atheist who doesn't value aesthetics. I don't, they don't view it as a connection to the divine, but like, yeah, beauty. I don't, I don't know anyone who would say generally beauty doesn't matter. I know people who would say it doesn't matter for my parking garage that I'm paying for, but I don't know any, but that person probably has art on their walls. I don't know anyone who would say- No, but my matter. question was, why does it matter? I think it matters because it's a connection to the divine. Why do you think it matters? Oh, I think it's uh, inspirational. I mean, beauty beauty can show you what's possible um, and what's what's imaginable and in, in that humans can- imagine and, and achieve. It's like reading a fiction book. You can see a hero, for example, who is more heroic than anyone you know in real life. But the, the fact that someone can imagine someone who behaves that way and does those things and and has the triumphs that they have, like that's an inspiration. And I think all art, even even if it's even if you can't articulate it, you look at good art and you get a feeling of of 
um, hope and being inspired about the world because someone produced something that is is not what you can see normally. It's not the, the mundane and the ordinary. It's something exceptional. And challenging. Okay. I think that also what happens is, and you know, obviously there's different things. You know, we're talking about art and we're talking about different things, but when, and I hope it makes sense. I know I sometimes ramble on and I don't know if it always makes sense, but you know, it's like as individuals, um, well, as, there's two sides to everything, right? And beauty as it, on, it, on its own, it's like something inspirational, something that brings us happiness, perhaps when we see it, right? And the other side of the coin, for example, if we're looking at things is if everything was the same, everything looked exactly the same. There is no difference between this and that. Everything is the same. It would be such a boring situation. So, I mean, there would be nothing that you get out of it. And as human beings, we are always trying to look for things that are different. It's just how it is, I think. We are always striving to be different in a certain way from others. We're always trying to, you know, stand out perhaps. I mean, to a certain degree, you know, we, 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 it brings us joy. It brings us happiness to be able to, to uh, be uh, ourselves. And uh, when we see beauty, it just us inspires us, like Carter's saying. I mean, I'll just give you a simple example. It doesn't make any anything major, but like if when I'm driving to work and I have two ways to go, I can go through this route where I'm going through a bridge or through a causeway that I can see the water and I can see palm trees and I can see something that, you know, nature really nice, or I can go over this route where I'm going over the interstate where it's just the road and a couple of walls and that's it my preference will always be to go the other way, right? Just because I'm seeing nature and it just makes me happier just to see the water, just to see the ocean, whatever it is, because it brings us happiness. That's why it's so important. If everything was the same, it would be the, it's like the same thing about what we were talking about before, why it's important to give people uh, or, or the challenge. You have to reward challenge. We want to excel and to provide something i mean the what is different what is special what is challenging is something that we value and i think that's what art and beauty brings i mean i'm talking about beauty in terms of art and things that are created and or nature and things like that obviously so well sorry for the rambling but that's how i see it don't apologize that's good so carrie and carter you're both saying the same thing then right Carrie, yes. you're saying it, it, yeah. it connects you with the divine and Carter's saying it, it's what gives him hope. It's what gives him something to look at and to aim at. And, and basically that is exactly right. What Peterson says, beauty leads you back to what you have lost. Beauty reminds you of what remains forever immune to cynicism. Beauty beckons in a manner that straightens your aim. It reminds us that there is a lesser and greater value, right? And, and, that, and the culture today doesn't want us to look at things as they're being in a hierarchy and they're being a lesser and greater value, right? I've, Austin, I think it was you that that referenced the, the fat shaming uh, idea now, right? And that and that we because if we were to look at something that's an ideal, immediately it's a judge, and we've got two choices: we can want to emulate it, and we can want to um, be like it and and be inspired by it and be inspired by it, like what Carter mentioned, or the other side, you know, the part that is in all of us as well, we could have the desire to, to destroy it and tear it down. I think 
I think that that's that's correct. I think it kind of plays off something else here. So something that's really important about the chapter that Peterson's talking about is he he tags it onto the original room, clean clean your room, the original rule. I'm sorry, clean your room, right? And it makes me think of uh, a question I've had for a while that kind of I'd like to answer sometime, and that is like. The military is a really good example. The military is communism, right? And they make the ugliest buildings known to mankind. They're horrible, <laughs> terrible buildings. But you spend so much time out there, like the, the, inevitably in any place you're in, they'll spend a lot of time out there, like pulling weeds, cutting things down and making things beautified, beautification. It's like, okay, why do you do that? And the, the, there's this idea that exists in this culture that your building's a reflection of you and that you should take pride in that. And it's like, okay, that's one thing, but that's kind of like cleaning your room. And I think that what Peterson's saying here is the... That, that's not art. What is art is you have created something now that is beautiful in itself. And what it's going to do is it's going to serve you. So the space now that you want to be in it and the space is now serving you outside of just, I get ego because of how much effort and how much time I put into something. Um, it reminds me of like airports, right? Like airports, if you look at them are designed so that they're really uncomfortable and all the places they want you to move through quickly, like security, and then they become more comfortable in the terminal. So it's a, it's a, it's a subtle, like subliminal push to try and get to that terminal to where they want you to be and hang out but just my opinion. Sort of like Las Vegas has the uh, bed yes. spread, the walls and the floor all clash in your bed in your room that you've rented and downstairs in the casino. It actually looks exciting and kind of nice. And they pump in smells. You know this, right? At the, at the slot machines and scents and things that make you want to stick around because it's like, why does it smell so good here? <laughs> also the walls are painted red in the casinos because red's supposed to make you like lose track of time. Uh, oh, there's some science behind that. I was gonna, I wanted to add something to that, that conversation, that back and forth between Carter and Carrie that was going on where they were talking about um, beauty as either a connection to the divine or to or as an inspiration, um, there is a neutral concept of beauty that I think works really well for this discussion that people, whether you're a theist or atheist, you can probably at least entertain it, even if you don't agree. And that's um, the idea that beauty is something that makes you experience the sublime. And the whole point of the sublime is self-forgetfulness to where you're no longer thinking about yourself so much or even aware of yourself. You're just completely absorbed in this greater context. And it tends to make you feel small. That's one reason cathedrals are so huge is to make you feel small so you can forget yourself and have a sublime experience. Um, and a lot of people will feel threatened by this or think it's some, some act of psychological aggression. It's really not. Um, but anyway, I, I, I think it's definitely interesting that that one fits here, that this conversation has taken that turn, because that conception of beauty is from Kant, who influenced Jung, who is sort of the fountainhead of Peterson's views. So it's all uh, sort of coming full circle to uh, aesthetics as being about the sublime. Yeah, there's someone who said in on, on one of my threads online recently, that he really only feels like he experiences God in nature and i think i think that nature could do the same thing that you're talking about and where you're talking about the cathedral making you feel small so you're more likely to have this encounter with the sublime and and i think that people have i've certainly had experiences like that at the grand canyon or things that make you feel so small and and so um and, and if you do believe in a in a creator maybe provide that uh feeling of closeness there i think with everything that's bigger than you can I ask a question? Uh, because I, I relate to the feeling you're talking about, sort of, like I, I'm imagining being outside and under the stars or whatever, or even in a big cathedral. Um, 
But when when the language is used that like you feel small, I don't feel small. I I do lose myself in it. So like I I am like I do forget about kind of my existence because I'm focused on whatever is in front of me and I'm in awe of it and it's grand. But I wouldn't describe it as feeling small. Is that how Kant described it or is that just your words or can you talk about the nuance there? Uh, yeah, th those are just my words, but it's words a lot of people use. Um, it's not meant to name an actual emotion, although I can understand my language may have misled you on that point, you know, but it doesn't mean this emotion of I feel like I'm small. It's more of a relative thing. Like if I look at some enormous sequoia and I'm in awe of it and I'm fixated on how huge it is, necessarily that's coming from a place of the sequoia being bigger than I am. So even if I don't have an immediate sensation of feeling small, my smallness compared to the sequoia is still an integral part of that experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm asking because I, I do hear sometimes people say when they look up at the stars, oh, I feel so insignificant. And that they often use that word uh, interchangeably with the phrase, I'm feeling small. And I don't feel insignificant. I feel excited about the frontier and all this cool stuff out there. And it's so big and vast and incomprehensible, but I don't feel, it doesn't make me feel insignificant. And I'm trying to tease out whether that's part of the definition that Kant is going for and therefore Jung and Peter. Carter, no, one not. of the, 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 the comparison that I am curious if this, if this makes sense to you. So Carrie, when you say that the connection to the divine, like that resonates with me. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out what the other way to describe it would be. So there's a, there's a quote, uh, that Einstein says, imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited to all we know and understand while imagination embraces the entire world and all there will ever be to know and under understand. So Carter is beauty imagination. No, I would say those are two distinct concepts, beauty and imagination. I mean, and I actually don't think I'm very off from Carrie. She's just using the words divine to describe a particular feeling, which actually metaphorically, I completely agree with. In, in regards to the question you just asked about Kant, uh, no, that's not at all part of his definition. Now he will say that you sort of shrink to insignificance in a sublime experience, but that's in the sense that the experience involves you vanishing and forgetting yourself. So insignificant in that sense, but the actual feeling of insignificance is not part of the of an aesthetics of sublimity. No. We uh we have about we usually go about two hours for these, and and not that we couldn't go longer today, but uh, if we usually let's assume we're going to wrap up, and we usually do, we have about half an hour left, and I wanted to ask if there if there's a, a rule in particular that we haven't discussed yet that someone wants to jump, especially someone who hasn't talked a lot yet. If you want to say something, if you've been holding your peace, is there another rule we'd like to, to delve into? Zato, you've been kind of quiet. I am going to pick on you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, every time I had a comment, it, it, I couldn't jump in in time and it was, it moved on. So it's fine. Um, and I'm not good at, at jumping in. So thanks for calling me out. Um, I actually like, uh, so rule two and seven, I feel, are kind of similar, where it's uh, aim single-mindedly at something and work as hard as you can in one thing and see what happens. Uh, and those kind of resonated with me just because uh, it kind of gives me motivation to actually 
to do that because I tend to scatter my mind into all these different things I want to do. And then I end up not doing any of them. So, uh, or, or doing them all half-assed instead and not mm-hmm. actually achieving anything. So uh, it gave me some thought to what, if I could pick one thing, like what should I, or what could I do? And then also the, the obvious part that, you know, you may not succeed and you probably won't succeed. So like that kind of encouragement is helpful. Um, I have, I have a side comment. I don't want to take this in a different direction, but one of the things I didn't like or I found distracting in the book was the references to Harry Potter. And I don't know if that was, if that affected anyone else, but maybe because <laughs> it's, a, it's a, it's a personal, it's a, it's a fiction. So why is that even relevant to, uh, you know, an anecdote, but that was just me. It's narrative. It's the metaphor. It's literature. <laughs> I love the Harry Potter. <laughs> I know. He brought up like fairy tales as well. I mean, and then on the religious side, he didn't just stitch the Bible. He 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 hit some Eastern religion too. I mean, he didn't. He he really wanted to hit everything. You know, when it came up to bringing up, you know, his lexicon of examples in literature and stuff, he he wanted something for everybody, which I think is actually really intelligent and also shows how uh, strong some of these ideas are, how how lasting and how like they span culture, they span time. I think that was really intelligent and a really good way of getting people to relate to certain things. That doesn't mean every single one of them is going to relate to everyone who reads the book. Uh, you can't hit everybody with each one of those. Yeah, I know. I noticed that he he drew from Harry Potter quite a bit too, and it, it just made me laugh because I was thinking about how when a piece of literature, or fiction, or art, or music really resonates with me, how I come back to it over and over, and nobody knows that more than Carter because I talk to him so many times per week, and I always use the same references. <laughs> probably <laughs> like it and so for him for whatever reason I think Harry Potter just it, it it's very widely known the story I haven't read that read it but I know a lot of people who have and so it I think it just embodies a lot of what he's talking about out of all the references he uses like the pop culture references my favorite would probably be Pinocchio I really love he's got a whole video about Pinocchio and and, and about rescuing your father from the belly of the well and um becoming real, like wishing upon a star and all of these different um, um, uh, ways of telling the, the, these different archetypes. And and I also really love his biblical series. Like I said, the Cain and Abel one was really meaningful to me and I come back to that all the time. Um, but yeah, that's funny that you noticed the Harry Potter one because I, I also was like, it's a lot of Harry Potter in this book. That's a good point because <laughs> I actually, I liked the references to uh, like Peter Pan and that's obviously yeah. a fictional story too, but that resonated with me more. So I guess it's just the, it was just the story. And I like Harry Potter. I just, I was having trouble following that. Well, it crossed my mind too, as I was reading those, cause they're, you're right. There were a lot of them. Um, I wondered if it was something that was particularly meaningful to Jordan Peterson, or if it was something that he thought would particularly resonate with his desired audience that everybody would have read. So I'm not sure which of those things was the case there. Um, his, um, well, 12 Rules for Life, as I understand it, and I think I heard him talk about this and somebody else could correct me if I'm wrong, is it's kind of a, a, um, a clearer communicated um, writing of his uh, first book, which is Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, which is like super dense. 
and um, he has lectures on YouTube about that. But, but really in that book, he talks about the earliest stories in history and how they build upon each other to kind of scaffold into the institutions that we understand today. And, um, he, and he talks about how that we all are drawn to these stories of heroism and, and that's what makes Harry Potter such a good book and has such a vast read is that it follows the same archetypical stories that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, we've all read really bad literature, right? Because there's a lot of woke um, uh, social justice literature that, you know, you kind of read it and it doesn't make a lot of sense and the endings don't make sense and it's not relevant to real life. Whereas Harry Potter follows that, follows that traditional um, hero's journey story. Can I share with you a crushing woke anecdote I just heard? My preacher was talking about a, a college um, nearby and one of the courses that they offer is a course on the life and times of Jesus Christ. It's a Christian college. There are two books that they're assigned in this course this year. One is a book that's called something like the life and times of Jesus Christ. And the other book is, and I guessed it as he was telling me this, I guessed it. I was like, what's the wokest book that could be about what life is about? It's Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and I. Can you believe? <laughs> I wish that the people watching this could see everyone's reactions. It's a book that has nothing to do, I would argue with, well, first of all, with the life of Jesus Christ. And also it's teaching the exact opposite um, uh, it, it, it's imparting the exact opposite sort of wisdom. It's like anti-wisdom. There was actually a study done, wasn't there, Carter, that we talked about that if if you're a young black man, if it, if you read this book after you've read the book, you have a much lower self-esteem and um, uh, you 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 yeah, I think yourself. you felt yeah yeah you felt less capable to achieve in the world basically um, yeah and something like that yeah. Anyway, just talking about narratives and good narratives and good archetypes and then anti-narratives. <laughs> uh, well, as Josie keeps bringing up, a lot of this is that he equates this to is the story we tell ourselves. And uh, one of the things that really, um, like I was thinking of as he was, he kept bringing up that point was that every time you tell a story, you're not recalling the original memory of the event. You're actually recalling the last time you recalled the memory. So if you embellish, if you leave parts out, over time, you will think that the lies you told yourself that you told when the last time you recalled that memory are true. And that's how people delude themselves. So it's really important from the very beginning not to lie to yourself, which is one of the things he brings up a lot. And I, I think that's, uh, he, I'm amazed he didn't bring up that idea that, um, you know, brain science about recalling your last memory recall, uh, because I feel like it, it really feeds into his ideas. Um, I just wanted to ask Kent if he's still there, if he had anything he wanted to add since he hadn't, Kent, you haven't spoken a lot and you may not be there. Okay. Are there any other rules that people wanted to touch on? 
that were really meaningful to them. I wanted to know what you thought of the marriage rule, Carrie. Did you make it to that one? It was rule 10. I did. I did make it to rule 10 and that's, I'm in the middle of rule 10. Uh, (laughs) I didn't finish it. So uh, I really, I really like this one. I've, I appreciate um, what he's had to say about marriage in his lectures as well. And I've, I've actually quoted him before when, when I was entering into the idea of marriage and what a marriage should be and about how I, I, you know, the idea of, you know, you're, you're both promising that you're not going to run no matter what. And he talks about that here when it comes to the vows that you're, let me see if I can, if I can find that part, but, but uh, the part where he's talking about, you're, you're basically making a promise that no matter what happens, you're going to stick around, which itself should be terrifying. (laughs) Um, But I think, I think that's, otherwise, what is the point? The more that I thought about marriage, and the older I get, the, the more I think, what is the point of make, of making this kind of vow and entering into this kind of agreement unless you're all in? And he talks about, you know, one of the worst things that you can do is lie to a person and lie to a person that you're supposed to be the most intimate and, and honest with. And if you're willing to do that, then, then you're basically creating a two different realities and you're not no longer living in a shared reality with your partner. And um, I don't know, I'm I'm getting ready to head into marriage in a week. And (laughs) I read this chapter and I read, um, gosh, what was the chapter about? Maybe it was the one about not sweeping anything into the fog about uh, the anecdote he gave about the the uh, husband who said after 20 years, why are we still eating all these small plates and how you should just address those things. Any problem that you have or any opinion that you have, you should just address it when it comes up and not to commit any uh, lies of omission of things that you believe or things that bother you, that it's better just to have the fight. Uh, this is something I learned just the hard way I've learned a lot of things the hard way is is learning that there's a way to have constructive arguments and that not all arguments are bad and if you grow up in an environment where the only types of arguments you see are really toxic and and destructive that you might uh, you might turn into an, an adult who tries to avoid confrontation and avoid arguments because you don't understand that there are positive ways to have them <laughs> so so yes yeah. the stress makes you look fat you gotta practice yeah. that yes well, if, if i ask my husband does this look good or does this make me look fat i want him to tell me if it makes me look fat i need to change my outfit but maybe that's just me but my 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 favorite quote from the whole book was in the chapter in the rule 10 chapter um when he was talking just exactly about that carrie about you need to have the argument Sometimes some arguments are not bad and sometimes it's really bad not to have the argument. It's much more destructive to not have the argument. And he said, do not foolishly confuse nice with good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't need to be nice. You need to do what the right thing to do is. And I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to be unkind, but you sometimes have to make a choice that's the best, you know, in the long run. And it might be hard now, but it's, you know, the best in the long run if you really want the best for your relationship. And that doesn't just go for marriage, but. I was going to say that, um, you know, 
I, I think the important thing is to see conflict as connection, not disconnection. And I had a, a friend, a narcissist friend, many, many years ago who um, we got into, we had some conflict and she said, you know, conflict is really just, it's just energizing for you. And, but for me, it's, it's really draining. And for, for years I lived with this, I let her sort of get into my mind that like, oh, conflict's energizing for me. So I need to be careful. And I finally realized that, you know, over year, over the years that like, you know, that she was a little bit narcissistic and now I just, you know, as long as you're not toxic and you're functional in how you're communicating, conflict is about connection. It isn't about disconnection. Someone who is a narcissist or who has no goal to come to a compromise or a resolution, they're going to see it as disconnection. So the two greatest pieces of advice I've ever heard about relationships, they were specific to marriage, but like one is um, in assume the best possible possible intent from the other person. And the other one is uh, it is not you versus the other person. It's both of you versus a problem. There's one part in here that made me, it actually made me think of something my preacher said, um, where he says, what's going to make you, where he's talking about the difference between negotiation, uh, tyranny and slavery. And he says, what's going to make you desperate enough to negotiate. And that made me think of something my preacher was talking about, which was if you want something you have, you have to really, if you want to quit doing something, like let's say a, a negative interaction with a, a spouse or, or some other type of business partner or friend or, or what have you, if you want to quit doing that, or if you want to quit a bad habit, that there has to be something that you want more. You have to be desperate for something else. And it can't just be, I, I don't want to do this thing anymore. I'm, pro I'm probably paraphrasing here, but that made me, that made me think about, you know, the importance of having something that you're aiming towards and and again getting back to consciously living and consciously making choices like i am consciously entering into this agreement and i want this more than i want to avoid my problems you know or more than i want to um drink or more than i want to you know do whatever this bad habit is <laughs> sit at home and not go to the gym <laughs> Okay, Carter, what did you think of? I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I don't have, I'm not authorized to have an opinion on the book. I well, I thought that was very interesting was uh, the rule 11. I was trying to find it because I, there's, there's so many stories in all of them that it, it becomes uh, difficult to sort of remember where the anecdote was. But the one about the woman that was, terrified of even walking through the grocery store meat market because she couldn't i mean she would she would imagine that uh you know the all these animals being killed and she i mean it was a fear she had or she couldn't confront it and how then he worked through through uh through that with her to sort of face that fear and eventually by facing that she was able to move past it and maybe get it past that subconscious or whatever situation that was going through her mind that were, were 
prevent her from doing it. And a lot of the stories that he has in the book are about that similar situation, which I think we all have in ourselves certain things that we just don't want to face. And, um, you know, I, I thought that was that was a great anecdote itself and, and, and helpful in a sense to sort of make you think about some things that you can see in your life that maybe you have to approach the same way. I loved that chapter, that rule more than any other one. And part the Sleeping Beauty story was part of why mm -hmm. uh, that client was so amazing. And part of it is because she's so debilitated. Like her, her emotional issues were so debilitating. Like she couldn't finish school. And mm -hmm. I, and, and it was like, see, this person made progress and you can too. I feel like, like he never said that but I feel like that's what a person could take from it. Like, I'm not this bad, but I can, I can be better. And if it's possible for her, it's possible for me. And I thought that was just a, a wonderful, wonderful rule. Also, it's always been my uh, idea that um, you shouldn't be resentful, that if you have a problem, you should say something or fix it or let it go. Like, that's kind of how I've lived my life for the last 10 years. So to me, I'm sort of like, yes, definitely don't be resentful. Take that, action. That Sleeping Beauty anecdote about her facing those fears that also went back to something he was saying earlier in the book, which was, which was about you having to do those things voluntarily about, you know, a lot of a lot of people, the, the very thing that's going to help you progress as an individual, or that's going to help us to progress is to face the thing that terrifies us. Mm. But it can't be by force. It has to be something we choose to do. The act of choosing it is part of what heals us to walk through that fear. Is that why step one is admit you have a problem in alcohol demonicness? Like prop. Probably. <laughs> Probably. All right, I'm going to say it. I'm surprised that nobody has put in abandoned ideology. No one's talked about that because that seems like something that, the, that this yeah. channel is really into. Um, abandoned ideology was a really interesting one. And obviously, he goes after communism pretty hard. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it was really cool the parameters that he kind of talks about, like in thinking and, and what you. It, it, he tries to basically tie everyone's psychology to be more interpersonal with the communication at least that's kind of what i read into it um i one of my habits i really i really enjoy like debating with people on uh theological like seminary like forums um but it's really hard because like it is religious like it is ideological and i'm really aware of that so it's like it's interesting perspectives but i also recognize that like that is not how you should really debate anything and it's it's, it's kind of unfair in a lot of ways to, to deal with other uh topics but uh that that chapter was a really good swing at a lot of the stuff that I think people here kind of usually comment on. I thought it was really good. Well, what's going on today, right? I think it's the one where the, the, the Russian lady who had come from Russia and was working and she was seeing all this, you know, this ideology going at work where she was afraid to confront her, her supervisor manager to tell her, to tell him what she was feeling right and that's exactly what we're living in today i think because what's happening in a sense is the same thing and 
So if we don't speak up against what we see happening out there and part of the part of everything that we've, you know, we've joined this group here with Carter and Carrie, I think a lot of us think the same way. But if we just sit back and say, well, yeah, it's it's a problem, but I'll, you know, I'll swallow that problem and not do anything about it, then that doesn't help anybody. And that's the ideology that you're talking about, that abandoned ideology often. I mean, we have to take action if you don't. The problem's not going to get better. <laughs> By yeah, itself. I think it was almost—it was almost a direct kind of um, yeah. reaction to the woke crowd, which I mean is kind of obvious. Like it's kind of an obvious move, and it's not—it's a little less philosophical than some of the chapters. But um, I, the, he ties it into like interpersonal psychology, which I thought was really interesting. And just mm-hmm. like he also mentions his last rule, which uh, one of the rules from Twelve Rules of Life—I can't remember—which was my favorite one, which is um, uh, listen to somebody assuming that they know something you don't, and that will never happen if you have an ideology. He, he's really clear about that. Like you can't listen to someone re- realistically if you don't have a an open mind to at least understand that maybe they have something to say that you don't. Uh, that was really cool. I'm pretty sure that this is from rule 11, uh, but my favorite uh, quote is, uh, well, paraphrasing again, basically, if you wanna live in a world where everyone thinks like you, everyone is an enemy or something along those lines. And I mean, it's it's quite crass, it, but if you really think about it, that seems to be where it goes. And I just thought that that was really, really um, made me think a lot. I thought one of one of the things in that ideology chapter that or rule that he talked about is something we we've, we've delved into before on unsafe space, which is that you know how Nietzsche sort of predicted that with the quote unquote death of God with humans killing the idea of God um, that that nihilism would come after and so would ideology sort of tyranny of ideology and um, I was hoping he would draw a distinction and I think he did to some degree between ideology and belief because that's something that I I kind of try and wrap my I'm still trying to wrap my head around it and I was trying to wrap my head around it just the other day because I got baptism I, I got baptism I got baptized <laughs> and I participated in a baptism and it was something very meaningful for me and I decided to do it because my preacher got me thinking about ritual and worship and and I do believe that if we um that I do believe there's something in humans that we're inclined towards ritual and and worship and that if it's not god we will fill that with something else and i started thinking about the importance of ritual and what a baptism means and and i'm also seeing all these people around me participating in another kind of baptism with you know getting tattoos of their vaccine and stuff and um and like i'm like well i would like to have a meaningful baptism of my own so um anyway i did that and someone on social media said congratulations you've traded one cult for another and I, I've heard that before, but I've, I thought about it because I've, I've thought about it a lot. I have heard it before. And I'm also a person who wants to make sure I don't fall into another rigid ideology. And so um, I've evaluated my belief system and I think it's different than a cult. I think it's different than an ideology, meaning the cult characteristics that my, that social justice lined up, that they checked off, they checked off a lot of them. Um, it doesn't allow questions you can't have curiosity, you can't disagree with the tenants, 
you must conform. Um, you're not encouraged to use your mind. You're just encouraged to memorize all these list of do's and don'ts, which are always changing. They encourage you to cut off contact with non-believers. Um, you, you know, the list goes on and on. You're isolating yourself um, and you're punished if you leave. And none of that is true for my belief system. None of that is true. In fact, the opposite, I'm encouraged to ask questions. Um, I'm encouraged to hang out with people who don't agree with me. <laughs> um, it's, I do a show with an atheist. Uh, I have a lot of some of some of my best atheists are friends, and I, I it's just it's just not the same. And so I was wondering if he would get to that. This is a long build up to say there was one part. Now he may not have described it in the same words that I am, but this one part where he's talking about essentially the difference between um, ideologues and religious people, and he says. Um, he does equate them to religious fundamentalists. He said, ideologues are the intellectual equivalent of fundamentalists, unyielding and rigid. Their self-righteousness and moral claim to social engineering is every bit as deep and dangerous. It might even be worse. Ideologues lay claim to, to rationality itself. So they try to justify their claims as logical and thoughtful. At least the fundamentalists admit devotion to something that they just believe arbitrarily. They are a lot more honest. Furthermore, fundamentalists are bound by a relationship with the transcendent. What this means is that God, the center of their moral universe, remains outside and above complete understanding, according to the fundamentalists' own creed. Right-wing Jews, Islamic hardliners, and ultra-conservative Christians must admit, if pushed, that God is essentially mysterious. This concession provides at least some boundary for their claims as individuals to righteousness and power. Um, as the genuine fundamentalists at least remain subordinate to something he cannot claim to totally understand, let alone master. But for the ideologue, for the ideologue, however, nothing remains outside understanding or mastery. And ideological theory explains everything, all past, all the present, and all the future. This is, this to me is the fundamental difference is my faith, first of all, I wouldn't say is fundamentalist Christian. I wouldn't define it that way. But but even if you were to look at a fundamentalist Christian sect or whatever, it's it's still it's still it's still centered around something that you can't completely know, a mysterious creator, and 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 it's admitting I don't know everything, because I have to have faith and belief. I don't know everything. Whereas a cult of ideology says we know everything. I've got an answer for everything. And that's why I think when they when they say they're like woke, woke is done. There's nothing left to learn. I'm woke. I know everything. My ideology has infused me with all knowledge. I'm morally and intellectually superior. I have no epistemic humility whatsoever because I'm woke. And that's that's an opposition to awakening, which is continual. It's present. It's something that's always happening, and it includes humility for what you don't know. Um, that was a long. Thank you for for allowing me to, <laughs> that was long. But anyway, I'm glad you touched on that. Any thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Me and Carter, yesterday, we're talking about that and we came to the conclusion that they deify themselves. I was gonna yes. say they do I have sort of their own version of continuous awakening, although it's very impoverished. And their version of continuous awakening is, is you can never understand the struggles of people who are more oppressed than you, according to the intersectional bingo game, you know. So you, and it's not their job to educate you, so you have to observe them carefully and try to internalize their suffering, although you can never fully understand it. So it's basically the degree of uh, 
illumination uh, is based on how oppressed you are in the whole intersectional bingo game. Alex, were you, I, I missed what you said. It sounded like you got cut off. I don't know if that was just me. I said that um, when me and Carter, uh, Caleb were talking yesterday, uh, we had a discussion about, um, and I, I posted about this on Twitter, a very long thread yesterday morning about how um, these people, they, they, they deify themselves uh, because a lot of them don't believe in God, but they believe that it's possible to, uh, that humans are special so that they, in an aberration from nature uh, is one of the things I, I said they believe. So they, they, they take the place of God in, in their ideology. Uh, a lot of this, this stuff is like religion, but it doesn't, as Caleb likes to say, doesn't have any saving grace to it. There's no way to, to redeem yourself. It's almost like a pervert. I, I talk, I think a lot about uh, the perversions of culture. So this is why I'm using this word again, but it, it is making me think of the a perversion of like God is within you because it, at its purest form, like thinking of God being within you is a good thing, but you know, that can be perverted into you are God, I guess. And that, that's what this is making me think of. I got into a, a back and forth with someone I would call a raging social justice ideologue on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. And this person um, was saying, I, they didn't like that I had quoted a Bible verse about um, woe to him who substitutes light for darkness, dark for darkness for light, you know, turning sort of what we see happening in culture all around us lately, which is this, we call it an upside down world, but where we're being told that fake news is truth and truth is fake news and um, uh, light is dark. And anyway, didn't like that I was quoting that verse and um, found a, uh, some Bible verse out of context and quoted it back at me. And then, and then also said something to the effect of, uh, you know, I am pure said this, said this, I am pure. Uh, I don't need anyone's prayers. I don't need God to do blah, 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 because God made me perfect as I am. And it was this really over the top, arrogant statement. And, and it was sort of, it's what you're talking about. It was a deification of the self and a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding, I think, of what Christianity even is. And, and someone who's trying to, uh, uh, maybe tear Christianity apart from the inside by, by quoting scripture and by saying, um, you know, by evoking the name God and saying, God made me blah, blah, blah. But it's like, God didn't make God making you perfect. It doesn't mean that you're infallible. In fact, we, you, we all sin. That's what Christians believe. And, and to say it all comes from within me and I am this and I am that. And, I don't know. I think so much of uh, what we're seeing in culture with, with identity is what you're talking about, Alex. It's a deification of the self. Everyone's turned inward. It's like the sacred identity of like, who am I? And, you know, you know, let me put everything, let, let, I'm going to gaze at my navel and I want everyone else to gaze at it too. I'm rambling now. I think there's something to be really said about that, about identity. Um, and the other thing too, is that when you 
find a breach of someone's identity, there's usually something really ugly there. Um, because it's, I mean, that's what, that's what your ego being, it's like, it's when someone's infringed on your ego trip. Um, I mean, Carrie knows this. I found this channel, uh, last year after I used to be a police officer for San Marcos and one of my friends, uh, was killed, shot and killed in line of duty. And it was like a month before the George Floyd riots. And when the whole world was like burning down, like my, my woke cousins, um, were very, they're actually, they're, they're sons of a preacher, but they were like condemning me as a racist right now for having been a, been a cop right now when my friend is like getting buried and, it was this really long story. It was a really big deal for me, but um, the, the realization that someone's ideology in my own family, like not only did it transcend like what they said they believe, but it, the way they were treating me was, was kind of interesting the way they would treat my friends. And um, that was a really deep dive. And actually that's kind of how I found this whole forum, but the identity is a really big deal. When you, when if someone's on, if someone's ties ideology to themselves, it's because they have tied their identity to it and it is a dangerous thing to step on it. Uh, Austin, I'm a little curious. Your yeah. friends, you say that they were condemning you and they, these are people you're related to and so on, or, or friends of yours rather. Yeah. Um, how long did that carry on? Were they only doing this while everything was burning in June of 2020 or did, or did, has this continued or what, what's the, what was the story behind that? I'm very curious. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, we're, I wish I could say otherwise, we're still, um, a little rocky. I've tried to repair it a couple times without given up some other things but yeah i'm not on i'm not on the best terms with a lot of them and uh it's even worse because my other cousin is a police chief and uh it, it's caused some problems but um yeah it was on the news uh, his name was justin putnam in san marcos pd and he was he was killed it was on national news and i, I found out when i was on covid mission and um yeah it was uh it was quite a, quite a big thing but seeing the, the personal attacks out of that 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 really drove it home while the country while the country was kind of burning was was really really painful but realized really quickly that attacks that I, I was facing not to not to martyr myself really were about other people's identity and um that's what ideology does it's very very subversive so do you feel that you had people breathing down your neck and trying to like tear you apart just to kind of validate basically the color of coat they chose to wear figuratively speaking um i think maybe but i think also maybe maybe but i think it's i think there's a deep-seated idea that i am better like it's a righteousness it's like a self-justification and um, it, I don't know how to cut through that. And I wish I did, but it's a, it was a really eye-opening experience for me. It really made me rethink my, the way I understood the world. Sydney, Simone, I'm sorry. Did you have something to add? Um, well, I was actually thinking it's, it's, a, it's a very naive worldview, right? To think that one is pure and, and, um, not recognizing the capacity for evil in each of us, right? I think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his quote, if it were only that easy, right? If the world were divided between good and evil, but actually good and evil cuts through the heart of every man. And so, um, and, and really it's thread throughout the whole book, right? This idea of um, we have the capacity for evil and, but when we oversimplify our world and that's what ideologues do, right? They oversimplify the world. There are the people who are the oppressors and, and all they do is oppress. And there are the people who are the victims and all they are is ever victims. Okay, can I bring something up? I know I, I hate to bring this up at the end, but I'm just dying to know. I, I, I hate to start a fight at the end, but um, okay. So I don't agree 
this is like getting off top topic, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to like end without bringing this up. I don't agree that feminine chaos and masculine is order. So what I do agree with is there's a feminine and masculine that there is chaos and order. Um, but, and I thought a lot about this, actually this woke me up in the middle of the night. I'm not kidding. Cause I was like, if I bring this up, I have to have like a counter argument to it. But what comes to me is by, by Peterson insisting that, that this, that order is, is masculine and uh, chaos is feminine is he is falling into the trap that he brings up, which is like the paradoxical hierarchy. Cause I feel like that, that is very limiting. So what I feel like is a better idea, a better thought is that there's feminine chaos and feminine order and there's masculine chaos and masculine order. So does anybody agree with me? <laughs> I do because for one thing, he, he kind of brought up a lot of examples, but then having read as much as I have, having had like a master's in English, I was like, there are, there are tons of examples in the opposite. Like, like I was like, you, you can't, you can't pick it you can't cherry pick your examples throughout literature and fairy tales and everything and go, yeah, feminine's chaos and order is masculine. Like it, it felt kind of weak. I felt like that exactly. was the weakest thing. And he yeah, did like, it in and the who first wrote, book. Who wrote fairy tales? Man. <laughs> you know what? I haven't read the book, but, but I, I can comment on this because it's one of the reasons that I'm uninterested in reading this book. Um, I, while I appreciate the dichotomy between chaos and order, uh, I think it's over, I, it's not particularly compelling to me and it's an overly simplistic way to couch. Everything is couched in that dichotomy, including he needs to do that because he's got to assign masculinity to one and femininity to the other because he has literally made everything a, a, a battle between these two extremes. And I don't, while I think that's helpful sometimes as a view as a, as a lens through which to view the world, I don't think it's universally applicable to everything always. And so I, that's one of the reasons I'm not particularly compelled to read something like this. And I get that it's Jungian. So I, if you're I, a fan of Jung, great. I think it, it is a useful lens through which to view the duality of chaos and order, but I, I, but I think it's a useful lens. I don't think it's. I said I, that's what I said. It's okay. A I'm not just. I'm not. But Carter. not always. That's all. Okay, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just talking in general. It's like sometimes when I say something, I feel like you think it's an attack on what you just said. It's not. I'm saying <laughs> I think it's a useful lens, and 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 that it doesn't mean it's the. I'm, I'm actually replying to Lindsay. <laughs> And, and that I think, I no, think I'm it's okay. Yeah, but it's like you interrupt sometimes when I'm saying something as if I'm disagreeing with you. I'm not. Okay. I'm just saying, I think it's a useful lens. I don't think it is necessarily the only way to look at things. And I don't, I don't think it, um, I'm sorry. I just lost track of the point I was trying to make. So <laughs> I think he's using averages again. I think the, the ladies who are not liking his analogy are are thinking he's saying every woman or every feminine or is or that chaos is negative i mean i'm more i've always been more of a masculine man uh, woman because i'm logical and i like things in their place and blah 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 and i don't but i'm still a woman so 
I think maybe you're you're making the the logical or the natural um, uh, faults uh, that a lot of people have that they're just they're sliding into oh he's talking about me no he's just talking averages I think I think that no might- I don't I don't, I don't think. I don't think chaos is inherently negative and order is inherently positive. That is not my problem with it. My problem with it is the fact that there are examples in literature and stories that say the, that have the opposite where the masculine is chaos and the feminine is order. So that's why I I find it really weird for him to go. It's always like this. And it's like, no, it's not. Well, I think he makes a good case for it, though, with what he's the different things he's pulling. But again, I think it's just a lens to view things through. Um, and I did like how what was the one story he used? It's the one about rescue, rescue your father. Uh, where was this on page one, 118. And Alex, you probably know how to pronounce these names better than I do. It's Osirius. Is that how you say it? Cyrus. That one I'm not sure. Cyrus, Set, Isis, and Horus. Oh, Osiris. I, uh, yeah, Osiris. And there's a part here where it made me actually think of the book that we read for book club, The Fourth Turning, about these cycles of order and chaos, sort of, where he's talking about how um, after Osiris and um, Set. And Set, right. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Set bided his time until he caught Osiris in a moment of weak of weakness, and then he dismembered him and scattered the pieces over the Egyptian countryside. Um, and he talks about when things fall apart, when order falls apart, how chaos and creativity will then give birth to, you know, something that's going to set things in order again. And there was this one line: "Thus, when the center will no longer hold, even at the darkest hour, new possibility makes itself manifest." And that was making me think about these cycles that we had read about in the fourth turning and sort of uh, bringing it back to that. But I know that's not getting to the heart of your masculine feminine thing about chaos and order, but uh, I really liked that part of that chapter. Well, even outside of stories, oh God, I don't know if this is going to piss people off, but like, I just, outside of stories in like history, like to me, the most chaotic thing is war. And who's started all the wars? Men. I don't know if that's too Ellen is responsible for at least one. I mean, I knew, I had a feeling you were going to bring that one up. I, 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 I'm, I'm just kidding you. I'm kidding. What, I'm what about Cleopatra? So, Fair. again, I mean, I just, do you think of women when you think of, 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 of somebody commanding war? I mean, I just... I don't know. I, I knew that was going to be. Not, but uh, I don't think we can equate masculine with all men and feminine with all women either. And I think no. we would be doing Jordan a, a disservice to say that because he attributes uh, order to masculine, he means men are all order and women are all chaos. That I don't believe that's at all what he's saying. And as to starting wars, I would I, I would mention that the most strict order there is is in militaries. Oh my God, the chat's going nuts with examples. <laughs> well, sometimes it's it's this cycle though. The war is what's necessary to install order again. 
sometimes society, and I'm not saying anything about the masculine or feminine aspect of it, but sometimes chaos has come into such a degree where there is no reconciliation and there's some kind of conflict needed or in order to go back to order. That's what that made me think about the fourth turning is sort of, you can view this as like, okay, things are falling apart and then war happens and then order is reestablished and then chaos ensues again and then and then war and then it just sort of continually these these cycles of, of one thing we tend to do when looking at history though part probably because men have been in positions of political power and mostly the writers of history um is we we're missing we're only looking at the surface level of the society's dynamics we're looking at what the the people in power and the writers are saying about events and what happened but I firmly believe that underneath all of that in many times and often women had actually a lot of power in other ways that did direct society. They are often responsible for raising um, children. They often ha did have influence on um, the men. They just, their influence is less documented and it's less direct. So I don't think, I wouldn't blame either gender for anything in history. It's been a dance and they've both been involved for basically everything. I think that's definitely right, Carter. And the first thing that comes to mind is that throughout history, there have been a lot of institutions that yes, only men could participate in, but it was limited to married men. So any decision that they made was- And women typically choose, I mean, I, I granted there have been times in history where women are just uh, property, but in, often in the West for quite a long time, women are the, the choosers of their mates and women, women who ostracized a man. I mean, look at uh, was it World War, was it World War One or two, where where people who didn't go to war um, were completely ostracized by uh, women and just couldn't get married and couldn't find a mate at all. That was the first one, and that was the you know the white feathers women. They gave white feathers to men that were not you know fighting and stuff. And it was really mean. I think though, like something not to derail this, but something that you mentioned about the military, like I think you'd be surprised at how chaotic the military really is. Um, and the reason that there is order in a military is not for order's sake or the institution. It's because war is chaos. It is nuts. I mean, it, it, like watching people fight, you just like, why is that person doing that thing? Well, I don't know. What is this? I don't even know what's going on. And watching things fight is really interesting. So um, for me personally, the idea between chaos versus order. Yeah, I mean, you can make a lot of criticisms, but if you talk about war, I think it's like the primeval example of chaos versus order. It's a really like the one that the side that can order themselves or like maintain some sort of order in that chaos is usually the one that wins. So would you say that militaries are basically doing their job when they turn chaos into order? To an extent, I mean, ideally, like there's different theories and I don't want to derail it, but I think that the US military has been really successful because we have a, an idea that we're going to take people and individuals and we're going to turn them into something right now that they can autonomously subject themselves to order or make decisions that are in line with that order and can, even when things are still chaotic, can still operate with a basic software order that adapts to what's going on around it. That might be esoteric, but that, that would be the best example I could say. It's basically impossible to achieve goals in too much chaos. And so in a, in a war or a battle, if you, there's, it's, it's one of the most chaotic things I can imagine, right? Because there are no rules basically, uh, which means like it's like people killing each other literally, right? So it's massively chaotic. So if you're gonna achieve a goal, you need to instill order. 
Um, otherwise, you can't comprehend it and you can't actually achieve any any kind of outcome. So that makes sense. Yeah, like without, again, without trying to derail us with that, I'm, I think back to, uh, I was watching ISIS fight Egypt one time and I saw, I literally saw two dudes get on a motorcycle and fight off a group of tanks with an AK-47 on the back of a motorcycle. Like my, it happened, my hand of God. And it was chaos, but you just realize like, what is going on here? And uh, it's, it is like, an example of chaos versus order one side just still maintain order while the other side is fighting and i still to this day ask myself what that was about i just want to say there are a lot of people in the chat who are talking about women leaders and wars <laughs> is, that, is that where you're talking about alex <laughs> and how many women leaders we have today and how many wars we're in. So I don't know. Well, like to bring it back, uh, Catherine of Aragon, while King Henry was in uh, France trying to defeat France again, uh, she was in charge of protecting uh, England from Scotland because Scotland and France were buddies at the time. And when he was gone, he got defeated and she won the Scottish front, in fact, killing their king. And so it's like, this is not new, the idea that sometimes queens were involved. I mean, Elizabeth the first, you know, great speech right before the Spanish Armada. I mean, that that galvanized her troops. So it's like, it's not, it's not insane to say that women were involved in war, including the decision to go to war. So we've already done um, two and a half hours on Beyond Order by Jordan Peterson. Uh, I know a couple of people have already had to take off and I appreciate everybody being here in the chat today and for everyone who's been on camera discussing with us. I just want to see if anybody had any final takeaways they wanted to say about the book uh, before we wrap up or any questions. I have, a, I have a question that will piss people off or I can save it. I cannot say it. It's up to you, Karen. Uh, sure. In reading the overture, the epically named overture, um, I came away thinking, am I the only guy who is like, hasn't struggled? Like, am I, am I the only person in the world who thinks it's weird to be on SSRIs for 20 years and a massive, like, I, it, I don't know why that's just glossed over and he doesn't even take personal responsibility for it. He says that he stumbled into addiction and that overture was a huge turnoff to me um, that I'm going to read a book about life advice from a guy who's been like so psychologically tortured and I feel bad for him. It sounds like a horrible situation and I get that he's in a lot of stress and I do like him a lot, but he's, he's going to do this. And then he doesn't say, I made the mistake of doing blah, blah, blah. He kind of, he does, he kind of passes the buck and says, well, I stumbled into addiction. I found that, I, I don't know why we're not allowed to judge Jordan Peterson. I'm not, I don't want to put him on a pedestal. Like I did not like that at all. Well, I think part of the problem is that he trusted the system that he is part of psychiatry. And a lot of that has to do with medication. I've known, I've known a lot of psychiatrists in their books, they talk about lifelong medication being sometimes the only answer. And it's kind of sad. Um, and it's not everything 
not every patient becomes addicted even if they've been on something for 20 years is part of the problem because a lot of that has to do with individual brain chemistry. They, and this is my problem with psychiatry uh, is that they don't look at the brain. They don't look at the blood levels all the time. It's not, it's not standard practice. And that, and I think that's part of, I think that's more a problem of psychiatry, which he is part of. He is a clinical psychiatrist. I think that, uh, uh, I don't, I don't put him on a pedestal. I know some people probably do, although he's helped me to change my life and turn my life around and a lot of helped a lot of people turn their life around. But, uh, the very fact that he has had difficulties and stumbled and, you know, been a part of his own, uh, problems in some ways, just like all humans are, that's, that to me is evidence. I mean, he's not Jesus. He is a human. And this book of rules, he's, I've heard him say before, just like 12 rules for life. He's like, I'm not someone I'm going to paraphrase this, but I'm not like reaching down and handing you a book on how to live your life in, in ways that I've perfected. He said, I wrote these rules for myself, <laughs> like to help me and also to help others. Cause these are rules I want to hold myself to. So I think he is, uh, achingly like human <laughs> and I think that is evident in his interviews and uh, you know the emotion comes through with things that he struggled with and um, I also think just stepping back like from a, a I guess a Christian perspective and you know I know everyone won't agree with this but I was thinking about how he was sort of absent from the public discourse for the past couple years and the trials that he was undergoing he and his family that we kept hearing about and i was thinking about from a christian perspective how um the devil doesn't care about you if you're not having an impact like if you're on the couch wasting your life away not living consciously getting drunk all the time um you know just 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 spending what you have on nothing <laughs> um that's of no interest to the devil, but, or to evil. And um, I think when you, when you start to focus on where you should be focused and where God wants you focused, that that's when things are probably going to get harder for you. And I think that what happened to him, I was thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, he is, this is a kind of spiritual warfare. All of the physical, all the stuff he was dealing with aside, like this guy is really going through it right now. You know why? Because he is helping so many people the words he's speaking are truth and they're helping so many people to turn their life around. And so I was praying for him a lot during these past two years. And I think a lot of people probably were, and uh, I'm really happy to see that he's back and, and I'm really happy to have this contribution that he's put out into the world um, that I know is going to help a lot of people. And um, yeah, I don't, I, that's probably not, that's just me rambling about what I was thinking about and what happened to him and, what kind of trials he's been through. And also, I think when you, uh, oh, look, look, somebody says, Lindsay says, yes, Carrie. He says that Abraham was called by God and yet life was still difficult for Abraham. Yeah, absolutely. And it probably got more difficult for him. It was a lot more difficult than when he was living in his father's tent, right? <laughs> so. I guess, so we're absolving, we're saying that like, 
because he's done so much good, that's why he's having so much suffering and God has given him suffering. Like, is that, is that what I'm hearing? We don't Absolving have, we don't him? judge him. It's not my place well, to absolve someone. Like, I don't well, know what you mean. Okay. It's my place to judge people that I'm going to take life advice from. And I don't want to take life advice from someone who's been on SSRIs for 20 plus years. And then on, on Benzo and has such like mental problems to the point of needing drugs. Like I, I don't, I look, I'm not perfect. I've got a lot of problems, but I've, I, I, I would never, I would never do anything like that. And I don't know a lot of people who are, is everyone but me on a bunch of mind altering drugs all the time, just to deal with reality. I was really disappointed, honestly. I think it's well, a well, nobody's, nobody's telling you, you have to take life advice from him. I mean, you didn't, you didn't choose to read the book. So, and that's your right. No, but he I'm has... asking why, it, if it bothers other people or if it's just me. So I think that that's a really fair criticism. Um, I know one thing when I was reading the overture, I was very interested because uh, I think it was written very specifically. There was a lawsuit, if I'm not mistaken, at the beginning of this year where uh, what a major magazine, which one escapes me, um, did an interview with him. And for some reason, I got time in my head. But basically, they, they said that they, they, they made a point that he was has this major drug addiction and there's more to it the way that they kind of described it. Um, I know that Michaela Peterson and Jordan Peterson are still in the lawsuit with that. So I suspect that the overture is written in a certain way right now in that's kind of vague because of that, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not expecting him to be perfect. And I, and I get all this. I, the thing that turned me off the most was I, I think a one sentence would have been fine in the overture to say like, I made this mistake. I'm responsible for this. I shouldn't have done this. This is like, I'm responsible. And the language was not, something that I felt was the upstanding language that I would expect from him based on his advice to people. I would have expected that. And instead I got, eh, I stumbled into some addiction, which is like very passive and very not owning the problem. I agree about the, the point about the passive language. Yeah. He could have not mentioned it at all. He could have just blown right through it um, and just ignored it. Um, I agree that it's a little, um, disheartening that someone who has been working with people in their own mental health hasn't been doing it the right way or the healthiest way, but um, he could have been like Fauci and just ignored it or told us a lie. I would, I will say Carter, especially after what you just said, Cheeky Mirror, um, I feel like it would be received better or I would feel like it was more genuine um, if he, he had some admission of the powerlessness. I mean, I think he does, but, but, but yeah, that's where I could see it is I feel like he could be more inviting by being a little, I don't want to say vulnerable because he is vulnerable. I don't know how, what I'm trying to articulate. I do think it's a little disingenuous, just a little bit in, instead of just saying like, I, devolved into this you know and now I'm taking accountability it it felt it feels a lot like it was all external and it could just be that there are factors we don't know but, but yeah right and by the way I want to be clear I don't think it negates any of his arguments or advice like that's a genetic fallacy and I'm not making it I'm just saying it bothered me it was a, it was a thing and I was like oh that's disappointing I like I kind of wanted some ownership there that's all I think, um, Carter, in response to your point, this isn't, I'm not arguing with you per se, it's just an observation that I think is relevant here. 
the, the whole wounded healer thing, like somebody who gives a lot of life advice, even though they're screwed up in the head is pretty old. Like if you look at all the people that, if you look at all the authors that people read because they're sad or depressed or feel lost, guys like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Jordan Peterson, Camus, Sartre, all these guys are screwed up in the head. They're all horribly depressed, neurotic people. Um, and I think the reason for that, and again, I'm not saying that it's okay for them to be that way, but I, I think maybe it's because people who are already screwed up tend to spend a lot of time navel-gazing and trying to fix it. And that's what a lot of this work comes out of. Doesn't mean they're right. Maybe reading them will screw you up worse, but I think that dealing with these issues is what causes people to do this kind of work. That makes sense. Uh, I just wanted to separate out what somebody said about um, you know, a person who's giving advice then succumbing to things or dealing with things in a certain way or maybe being on medication. I don't have a problem with any of that at all. And that I would, I would like to take life advice from people who've actually struggled because I know they've been through the trials they're talking about and they have, they're not just making things up. I think that's, I think that's different than saying, than pointing out that you felt he didn't take responsibility for those things though. And, or that the language was passive. And so I agree that I think the language was passive and it, it actually made me think a little bit about um, in the Christian world, Ravi Zacharias. I'm not that familiar with him. People kept telling me I needed to listen to him. And before I got a chance to, because there's a lot of things I want to read and watch, he passed away. And then all these allegations came out and, um, the allegations, I believe them. There were lots of allegations from women who said that he had um, been inappropriate with them and also, you know, threatened them and tried to keep them quiet. And um, there were some Christians who got really upset that I had shared an article about this. And, and they said I was, you know, judging and pointing out sin. And the thing is, I wasn't pointing out his sin. I even said, it's not about the sin. We all sin. It was about him not being honest about it, Robbie Zacharias, and not taking responsibility for it and trying to fix it. It was about living in the sin. That's what the issue was. And also being a person who was preaching from the pulpit. And, you know, when people find those things out after the fact, it's like, you could, you could be a huge stumbling block now because people were hearing the word and hearing the truth from you and then found out that you weren't living authentically, like you did not come to terms with what you did. I don't think I would have had the same problem hearing this about Ravi Zacharias if, if he had said, here's something I've been doing. <laughs> I need help. Let me admit this and be honest about it, you know, but he did the exact opposite. Um, I'm not well, trying can to- Can I just ask a question? Yeah. Would, would, would you take nutrition advice from someone who is unhealthy their entire lives? Uh, no. I would. That's, that's, that's the, I mean, it could be the right advice. Maybe they're unhealthy their whole lives and they've like really done a bunch, bunch of research and like they know how to be healthy, but I'm, I'm surprised that everyone's I glossing don't, over I don't think what he seems is. to me glossing over. Well, okay. Like, but for that analogy, I mean, I don't think Jordan Peterson is unhealthy. Like, I don't think he's unhealthy. So that, that would, in that analogy, you would have to say, like, I'm taking their life advice from someone who is unhealthy. And I don't, I don't think oh, he okay. is. Okay. Well, I, I do based on his overture. Okay. So that's well, the difference. I, yeah, that's okay. the difference. Um, and I think, I think um, the proof is in the pudding a lot of times. Like what I agree with you on is that there wasn't a lot of responsibility or, 
you know, ownership in the overture in terms of language and the language was passive. Also at the same time, uh, I don't like judging where someone's at in a struggle with things, I guess. Um, and he's at least talking about it. And I'm sure the way he talks about it will evolve maybe, but either way, the proof's in the pudding. Has he helped tens, maybe hundreds of thousands, who knows how many people to change their lives and to become productive members of society and to give up bad habits. And I'm living proof that he's done that for one person. And so I don't know the proofs in the pudding. It's like easy to criticize, but anyway. I, I, I'd like to contribute something because you had said Carter that um, I, you know, you want, you want to be able to judge him. And I think you have a point that you can right? That of course you have to discern, um, by, but it's not by just a person's words, right? It's also by their actions. And he references in rule three, a performative contradiction that we can find ourselves in where we can say something that we don't necessarily believe to be true and we do something completely different. And when I think about like the definition of taking responsibility for addiction, what exactly does that mean? Like, would you have felt better if he said something like what I did was wrong and I take responsibility for it? Or is it sufficient enough that he worked his recovery such? And, and he even said when he talked about the reason why he survived, right? The love of his family and encouragement and that I believe I could have fallen prey to resentment and I would have perished once and for all. So is, is it sufficient enough to say that somebody who comes back from uh, addiction and darkness is actually taking responsibility for themselves and getting back in the saddle and doing the work and doing their work, right? Like he's, he got back into his job. He's still an involved husband and family and, and grandfather and, and working towards that recovery. And the other thing is he's not a psychiatrist. He's actually a registered psychologist and in Ontario, Canada, um, registered psychologists can't prescribe medication and they don't only psychiatrists do. But anyways, that's just my thought, Carter. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't, I wouldn't say that just coming back to your life is sufficient, no. But um, I, I also wanna be clear. I mean, a lot of people in chat are like, oh, so you can't listen to any of his advice. I actually think most of his advice is good. I'm not saying throw out his advice and don't listen to him. That is a genetic fallacy and that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is I'm surprised that like, if, if someone, if a, let's say an obese person wrote a book on nutrition, right? And they were still obese and they've been obese for 20 years and they, they've been struggling with obesity and they wrote a book on nutrition. I would say, okay, well, um, before we read the book or as we're reading the book, let's keep this in the back of my mind, of our mind. Like there, there's, this is something they're struggling with. It doesn't mean that their nutrition is wrong. They might still present awesome arguments for why their perspective on nutrition is correct and maybe why they didn't follow it and maybe point out like, I know X, Y, and Z is correct, but I didn't do these and this is what led to this or whatever it is. Like they, they could still write a very valuable book with lots of interesting things in it. But there's something that that I think we're, it's not happening, which is the the a priori, like stopping and saying, okay, well, let's, let's just be clear. This person isn't the healthiest person psychologically. And, and I would say that because I don't think anyone who needs to be on SSRIs to not kill themselves for 20 years is healthy. Psycholo that's not the life I want. It's not the life I want for my kids. I don't think that's a great coping mechanism. 
And so it doesn't mean he's wrong. In fact, again, I'll say it again. I think a lot of what he says is right, and he supports it with arguments outside of himself, which is important. But just knowing that that's necessary is important and saying, okay, well, this guy better be using arguments outside of his him, himself, or he better be relating them back to his own mistakes. And that's all. I just, I, I'd like a, a more reality focused approach to this book rather than just, let's just ignore that whole part of how he's lived his life and his whole, his whole mental condition and just read the book as if it's unrelated to anything that he's lived. I think um, God uses people who are like in the first Corinthians says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And I think about that verse a lot when I, when I hear truth being spoken from a broken vessel. And I think that broken vessels are necessary because it's not about the vessel. And, it, and if, and if it's spoken from, I, th I think there's a, a more serious kind of brokenness from which um, truth could be delivered. Uh, other, other kinds of brokenness like pride, for example. And I think God chooses people who are broken for a reason or truth is delivered best. If you don't believe in God, truth is best delivered from people who are broken for a reason. And, um, and, and I think that when it's delivered from someone who appears to be perfect and prideful that um, you, we should be suspect. Does that make sense? I don't know. I'm just going to keep using my like, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the bodybuilder how to work out. I'm going to ask the thin, healthy person how to eat. Uh, I don't approach them as suspect because they're good at what they do. He's but the, but the proof's in the pudding, he's helped tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. He is good at what he does. You are, am I not evidence that he's good at what he does? That's a, that's a fair point. And I think it should be taken into account. Like a lot of people have felt help from him. But still, I, it's like, okay, it, let's also take into account the fact that he's not happy. He's, <laughs> he's not a happy person. He's not happy. Are you that, happy? Yeah. Okay. I am. I'm very happy and content. Like, I don't, that's why I'm confused by this. And it's also, it's like, I, that's why I'm confused by, like, I, I, and, and, and frankly, it was the, it's the non-responsibility part that, that bothers me more because we all make mistakes and we all have issues and I would have preferred some taking responsibility and then relating it to his advice and saying, this is my piece of advice. I didn't take it in this perspective and look at the negative impact that it had on my life, right? And right. then we can all relate to that. I think there's something to be said for that, but not to, not to really draw this out anymore, but there is a part in there where he talks about happiness and how most people would, would want to be happy, but I don't think the book is about happiness. I don't think that any of his books are about happiness. He even says that, yes. Yeah, it's about function. I was going with the word happiness because it was what Carrie used or what maybe what I used at the beginning. Like, I think it's, no, but I think that that's right. That's I think that that's a really good, but drawing the, the distinction is kind of like the point. And I think that, that, and he talks about a lot how like your, your capacity for negative is much greater than your capacity for positive. And I think that that's like such a huge deal because most people don't acknowledge that right now. It's okay if you don't have the happiest life. You're not going to, and regardless, and you're going to have ups and downs and bumps in it. And it's more like, how do you find meaning in throughout the entire 
scope of your life. And I don't think that you could look at Jordan Peterson's life and say that that's not something he does. I think, I think that he's pretty clear in drawing meaning out of his, his life and his experiences. I think that's all fair. And yeah. like, and, and again, he, I just want to have this discussion that we're having right now so that we can have a realistic view of him as both someone who has perhaps profound meeting, helped a lot of people, also personal struggles and, and, and issues that we don't have to call it happiness, but, you know, struggles to the point of being suicidal, which I don't know what you want to call that, but I don't call it healthy. It's a really good point. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I know a lot of people who've, who've been through, had suicidal moments before and, and, uh, and also recovered from them and I would call them healthy and, um, yeah, anyway, I'm not saying think... no suicidal moments. I'm saying like, this is a pattern, right? 20 years on SSRIs is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Why does it bother you so much? Was it constant that he was on SSRIs? Yeah. Whatever that acronym was. Oh, it was constant. So was he struggling? I would be a lot more, um, I would have a lot less criticism of the process if he was, if he was struggling through it the whole time. I mean, I've struggled with my weight for uh, 20 years and you know I I do have some I've I do have some insight on what works for me and so I don't know if if I was I don't know if that helps the argument I don't know <laughs> I, think, I think there's something there but I I have a friend who's a Travis County deputy he's been on SSRIs for going on 11 years now and he and I both have absolutely done a lot with like people who are suicidal we've been there when people were suicidal trying to kill themselves and I, I think i mean it's not it's not ideal but i don't think those are mutually exclusive ideas just on itself yeah. plus i think people uh over time it's like you struggle with different things and if you're living your life consciously and in the way that he talks about living it i think you'll naturally get better at, at tackling each of these different struggles because you've been through it before and so, for example, you, uh, I'm a person who struggled with, have struggled with different crutches. I struggled with quitting drinking. When I quit drinking, uh, I started smoking cigarettes and then I had to stop smoking cigarettes. Now my biggest crutch is co coffee, which I think I'm gonna keep that one. Um, but I know people who, I think that one's okay to keep, but I know people who've struggled with um, uh, sugar. Uh, I know people who've struggled with, you know, not wanting to work out. I know people who struggle with shopping or gambling or have, you know, been on medication for a while. And I do think, I do think we're in a society that likes to throw medication at things and over prescribe that. And we don't really talk about it in the same way that we talk about other issues. Like we'll, we'll, we'll identify, you know, shopping problems or gambling problems or alcohol problems, but we won't talk about people over, you know, prescription med problems in the same way. But I guess my point is just that I don't think there is any perfect person. There was a verse I heard in church today about like, there is no person who is perfect. There is no person who is without sin. And um, that's what I meant about being suspicious of people who claim to speak from a high ground. I want somebody who's been through it and conquered things and it's proving to me that they're still human and there's still things they have to work on. And um, anyway, if anything, if there's a point of agreement, I did feel the language about it was passive in the overture, but I think, I okay. think he is effective in what he does and that 
that, that that's evidenced in all the lives that I don't, I wouldn't say he changed, but he helped people to change. He didn't change my life. He gave me the tools to change my life. Right. And I would just want to be clear. I'm not trying to say we should throw out what he's saying. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is he ostensibly respects reality focus. He respects alignment of deeds and words. And I think if we're going to read a book by this guy, we should be very clear going in, okay, these are the things he's struggling with. And is he upfront about them? And does he talk about what happened? And does he talk about the mistakes he made and all, all that kind of stuff? Well, I'm not looking for perfection, but, um, you know, if you're going to write a book on your ones on introspection and living the best life you can and your own mental, your own internal psychological state and how to be healthy, I would want that your own unhealthiness to be addressed very upfront. That's all. I think just tying it quickly back to how we started this conversation about the hierarchy of, of, of beginners and winners, you know, of course you want to read the winner's book, but there's so much more than just the winner's book. There's so many other stories. Uh, so, you know, and the, the value of everything in between, I guess. I don't know. That's just what I, I'm thinking about is I, I get it, Carter. Yeah. Like, you, you know, you go to learn something I want, you know, I want the best or the person that's, you know, it doesn't exist like the infallible or, you know, the most perfect, but um, you can find, you know, so for example, just, this is just a, just an anecdote, right? Like you, you have a person who's training for a marathon they end up injuring themselves. Maybe they're not able to do a marathon, but they do something else. Maybe I want to read that book to help me with the marathon. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, and it could also be, we don't know how bad he would be if he didn't follow these rules. He could have been dead on the side of the road, you know? Yes. And so, he, yes, he's struggling with um, a substance that, may have been offhandedly given to him um to begin with but then um if if he didn't have these anecdotes or all this this knowledge from his clients and all the people he's witnessed and changed their lives he may have sunk deeper and deeper and deeper and end up dead so uh that's i i i get though that because I'm very analytical of myself. I'm probably the most analytical of myself and instead of others. And so I get that you want to be able to turn your analyzing onto yourself, but um, some people just don't think like that. And I've had to accept it. I mean, there's coworkers at work. I'm like, how can you not see what you're doing? And it's because they don't think that way. And so maybe he just doesn't maybe he doesn't seem like he's not self-analyzing but maybe he just doesn't think that way as well as he should i don't know um well thank you guys all for joining us and i would just like to thank jordan peterson for writing this book and for what he's doing and for putting himself out there and putting all this wisdom in uh, to easily accessible videos and books and for sticking his neck out and speaking truth in an environment that is 
not very kind to truth speakers. And um, uh, we are going to be reading fiction next month. And we're reading, remind me. Catch 22, I Catch think. Catch 22. Yeah. Catch 22. Uh, you can find out more info at unsafespace.com on the book club page. And you can also join us here on camera. If you would like to next time, it's free to join and participate, or you can watch the videos or be a part of the live chat. I want to thank you all for tuning in and thank you guys who stuck around for the long haul tonight. Um, and I hope to see you next month. Oh, you're muted. You're muted. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, everyone. I will uh, endeavor to <laughs> I will endeavor to uh, run the end credits as soon as I figure out how to do that. So, take care, everyone. Thanks. We will see you on Monday for coffee break. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. They are also spreading vicious lies about me. I am human just like you. Insert localized idiomatic greeting. Individual sovereignty is highly contagious. Good parents keep their children regularly vaccinated. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.